What's new, listeners? I'm Arthur Howard, the host of Two Cents Critic. If you're in the mood for reviews of books, movies, and TV shows, then join in. Today, we'll be covering a mystery, a mystery novel called The Maid by Nita Prose. And today, I'll be having Ray from the podcast Not Before Coffee joining me. Say hi, Ray. Hi, everyone. Yes. And so, so do, you want, do you want to say a bit about your, about your podcast and just what you, what you do? Yeah, um, my podcast is Not Before Coffee and it's been going since September 2020. So it's a it's a pandemic podcast, as I think a large number are going to be called from going forward. I used to talk movies, TV, infrequently books and mental health, but over the last couple of months I decided to strip it down to literally talking about what I love which is reading and I read a lot so every Monday I release a brand new episode about a book that I've read multiple genres I'm not just sticking to one and then I talk about the mental health issues that I've experienced over those seven days which range from everything from social anxiety to full-on nervous freak out mm-hmm. and I've been doing it for a while and I have to say that talking about it actually helps yeah that, that, that's element of your show that you appreciate is the, the open the open attitude about your mental health because you know that is something I feel like we need to promote more often in order to you know to destigmatize mental health oh. awareness Definitely. I grew up in a, in the years I was a teenager in the seven, in the eighties. And during that time, it was the only time you ever talked about therapy was when you were taking the mick out of the fact that every single character in American soaps had a therapist. Yeah. And, and, and that's why like, even when, even when I listen to podcasts, I'll always hear the, the sponsors for things like better help or, or, I think what well, has space. I think yeah. I think has space. That's another one. Yeah. And it's funny because typically I'm always like, oh my gosh, I I'll listen, I listen to a lot of podcasts, so I'll hear a lot of sponsors over and over and over again. Definitely. But for, but for this time, for like for, for the sponsors, when it's when it's for like for these uh, therapy programs, I'm like, you know what, this is actually okay. Like I'm okay with hearing this over and over again because we do need like we we need more f- promotion of of this. Yeah, I, to- I agree widen the space for therapy and just how people know just how people know that hey this is good it's, it's help it's healthy for us yeah it's helping I think it's helping people to realize that talking about it should not be stigmatized it should be you should be able to be open and honest with your friends and your family about how you feel at any time rather than when it gets really bad yes yes I, so I, yes, I definitely appreciate that aspect of your show and and I want and I want to thank you for coming on here today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It's interesting to pick up a book that I hadn't actually even heard of until you mentioned it. Yeah, and so yeah, so, so now let's get into our initial thoughts and feelings about the maid. Again, this is a mystery, a mystery novel by Nita Prose. This is her debut, uh, her her debut novel, and she was a longtime editor. She she worked for over I think fifteen years, if I have my information correctly. And, you know, and, and so basically th- th- this book is about uh, the, the eponymous maid, Molly Gray. She works at this, you know, 
uh, upscale hotels, and she and she and she ends up getting entangled in this mystery when she finds the body of one of the hotel's most loyal guests and his uh, dead and in, in his bed. And and then, and then also and and then also she is she's 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 coded as being on the spectrum, and I will have my thoughts on the way that I felt like that was represented in the book. And that's the thing I never that's I'm I did read I was reading a lot of reviews about this after I finished reading the book, and the funny thing is she's never actually it never is anywhere stated that she's on the spectrum not in one single location in the book it's It's only what people have no it's not explicit so it could well be that she isn't on the spectrum she's just that way because people say oh she's special which is something that they used to say when we were kids about people who were on the spectrum because it wasn't diagnosed as much Mm -hmm. but it it's also interesting that given it is i'm assuming based in modern day it felt, it felt contemporary it's just with technology yeah. like they had modern phones so it felt yeah exactly therefore why was she not ever diagnosed with anything because yeah. given that she is still quite young yeah she's 25 25 specifically oh. and, exactly. and now we'll talk about this so, so i want to hear your your general thoughts and feelings about about the book first let's get into that I liked it. It wasn't, I've been reading quite a lot of uh, contemporary cozy, so-called cozy crimes recently. In fact, I reviewed two at the end of last year because I read them in quick succession. And I found a lot of it quite predictable. And it was also interesting how the author had, I think, in some way used the inspiration of the game Cluedo with the names of the characters. So we have Molly Gray, Mr. Black, Mr. Snow, Detective Stark, all of these characters who have got names related to a form of color. Okay, okay, okay. That's, you know what, I did not pick up, pick up on that connection actually. That's what, huh. huh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, didn't, <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, get, I didn't catch that actually. That's, you, have, you have a good idea. It was one of those things that immediately struck me as this is interesting because I was I then started looking out for the characters like Mr. Preston and his daughter Charlotte and obviously Rodney, who didn't have names related to a colour. Because mm. I think even Wilbur had a name related to a colour. Oh, was it was it Brown? Yes, it was Wilbur yes, Brown. Yes, Wilbur Brown, yep. Ah, interesting. And I think there was also a green in there somewhere too. Wasn't oh, the girl, oh, wasn't uh, the Cheryl, other, the awful maid Cheryl the, the was Cheryl yep, Green Cheryl, Cheryl Green yes so there was a lot of almost sort of little hints about this is a game of Clue mm-hmm. oh and then also let's uh, keep this a spoiler free I don't think there have been any, any spoilers that have popped up but no haven't I haven't said anything so. yeah yeah I just want I just want to throw that out there. And okay, so 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 you said it was predictable. So so I so do you what do you say? Did you, do you like the book or did you have problems with it? I found some of it was quite good. There were certain moments where I felt like things were being repeated for no reason, and there were certain elements I think were far too for far more convoluted than necessary. But as I said, I've been reading a lot of this type of book, and I like them to be 
not stripped back and logical because I do like a bit of the intrigue and everything, but I do think that certain things weren't necessarily required, such as the when she is initially questioned in the prisons, when she's initially arrested, well, not arrested, but taken for questioning. And all of a sudden we get the run through of the entire day and every single minute action that occurred after the fact. And that was kind of, if you're reading it in pieces rather than as I did, I think that's, that could be read as quite confusing because all of a sudden you're then back in the police station. It's like, hang on a second. If you stopped reading halfway through and left it for a couple of days and then went back to it, it might be a case of now I've got to read all of that again because I have no idea why I'm here. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. And any 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 other uh, thoughts you want to express? Uh, I think that Molly was a great was a really interesting character. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. But there were certain things about her, and I'm not talking about the way they portrayed her because the detached thing could have been because she only ever had her grandmother, and her mother and her father had vanished before she was even sort of three months old Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of her emotional detachment is more likely that than her being on the spectrum it's like I'm learning not to care about people because so many people have hurt me or abandoned me Mm -hmm. and Wilbur being the last kind of straw that broke the camel's back okay okay and then okay so all right, so we have your thoughts and feelings, and now my thoughts and feelings on the book is that I, I generally, I generally, I generally liked it, but it does have flaws. It's not a full-on love of this book, and I would say, like, generally, I, I think Molly is, uh, without a doubt, the strongest aspect of the book. I love the voice that was created for her. And I found her to be quite endearing and someone with whom I could easily relate. And uh, and I and okay, so um, okay, so I will get into I will just get into the portrayal right now of the autism, but I feel like because I feel like that actually has been the part that has been like sticking with me the most because she's never she's never just explicitly stated as autistic, and no. that that did feel that did, it did feel odd reading this book that it's not like it's not like it takes place say in the 1950s when autism no. wasn't even a wasn't even considered to be real it also doesn't take place in a fantasy setting or a sci-fi setting where maybe people people with autism would be referred to by different terms or just be looked at it in a different way than we would than we would recognize it it takes place in, a, in this modern setting and it does feel odd that oh, because, uh, I know that in, okay. I know in real life there are it, it is like it, it has been studies where a lot of women do end up passing as being not as being neurotypical. That does happen. So I feel like okay. On the one hand, maybe, but I feel like but I still feel like it was in was in this book though. I feel like there had to be at least one mention, whether it's to herself, whether it's someone she knows closely who who mentions that she's on the spectrum. I just feel like we had to get a mention somewhere in there. And I actually was listening to a podcast interview with, uh, with the author, with Nita Froze, and 
so and when the when the podcast host asks Prose about the characterization characterization of body, I have to quote here about of what Prose responded. It was a discovery to figure out that she was a person in a state of grief who had a really peculiar sort of eccentric point of view on the world that was different, that was unique. I wanted to write a mystery that was about somebody who was the same as all of us and yet entirely different. And so I, and in, in this podcast, I also never even mentions anything about, about the character being coded as, uh, being, as being neurodivergent. And it's just, it, 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 leaves me, it leaves me feeling odd. And my feelings were confirmed when I looked up the other reviews and other reviewers were pointing this out. And it's just, it almost, it, it, you, you know how sometimes like when you, when you, want, when you watch media and there's a whole phenomenon, ph- phenomenon of queer baiting and you feel like someone is being coded as gay or two characters are being coded as being in a gay relationship. But, yeah. it, but it never actually like go carries it out explicitly. This kind of felt like that, and it kind of, and it bugs and it does bug me. It does take down the book a bit in my view, and I just wish I really wish it, I really wish it could have been just explicitly stated somewhere that is on the spectrum and without and instead of just leaving me kind of just yeah, but then, me kind of questioning here yeah but then could it also have not been the reverse that she wasn't on the spectrum because as I mean you said that a lot more women are diagnosed a lot later in life with as being neurodivergent and you're speaking to one of them I wasn't diagnosed until last year hmm. so in my late 40s I was diagnosed and I'm no my behavior is I do struggle sometimes when in social situations and things and always have done and I've never thought anything different of it. And you do develop methods of coping because you have to. However, with Molly, as as the author stated, she is in a state of grief and grief does a lot to your brain. It really does. It does a lot to change your perception of things. And especially when you read the end of the book and discover what actually occurred with her grandmother you can see why her behavior is so different so part of me is saying forget the neurodivergence don't even put that on the table look at her as a young woman who is grieving she is isolated she has very very small circle of friends if any at all and she has no one to confide in she isn't she grew up with an el- uh, with an elderly pair with an elderly grandparent not children of her own age no siblings her parents weren't anywhere to be found so she was learning from someone of a totally different generation to herself which would explain a lot of her mannerisms her grandmother was also a cleaner who liked things to be ordered and orderly so a lot of her structure would have come from that, which would explain a lot of her behaviors without even saying she is on the spectrum. So I think that if the author isn't saying, and she probably would say outright, yes, this character is on the spectrum, but I wanted her to be accepted for who she was without justifying anything. I just say that she is a girl who is grieving, who had a very different upbringing to one that most of us are accustomed to. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. 
I mean, yeah, I, I, I would just be interested. I would just be interested to know if if someone would ask if someone would ask the author directly if is Molly is Molly meant to be coded as autistic was that part of your intention? I'd just be interested to know what the author's answer would be. Well, the author, if she's not on the spectrum herself, would come down. Would people would come down on her like a ton of bricks? Yeah. Because they'd say, where is your experience in doing this? Whereas creating a character as she has done, who is unique, she hasn't outright stated, I've created a character who is neurodivergent and I've got no experience in that at all. Yeah. And from what, from, what I, from what I've looked up, I don't think she is, or she, she hasn't said that she's neurodivergent. I don't know. like, but The information I, that I found says very, very similar that she has that she isn't and I honestly do think that I take her at face value and say she is a girl who is grieving who had a very different upbringing all right uh all right and and then I, I would say that definitely definitely mystery is uh it is predictable like you, you I, I could tell from early on where the where the, uh, what kind of events would unfold and I did kind of I did wish that the that the story what had a few more, but I just like some, some of the stuff I wasn't able to foresee a, a few, a few, of the, a few of the turns, but most of it I was able to see coming. And I wish it was a bit more, a bit more twisty, a bit, a bit harder for me to predict. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that one. I do think that there were certain things you could see a mile off. In fact, as I'm going through my notes, I was saying things, uh, talking about Giselle Black, Charles Black's second wife and everything else. And I could see those things coming a mile off. Yes. And, and also all of the stuff with Rodney, yes. the barman. Oh, I, you just knew that oh, yeah. he we'll, was a bad one. Oh yeah. We'll be getting into that and the end of flat breakdown and the spoilery flat breakdown. And, and then, and then I also, I also, uh, I, I was, I was off put, by the, I found the, uh, the cultural stereotyping of one of the one of the side characters, and we'll, again we'll get we'll get into that. It was specifically a uh, one man well. I found I found that to be kind of like a a, st- a stereotypical portrayal of him in the book. Did you have any thoughts on that? Um, that's the thing. I think that they he was a plot device, yeah. and that's it's plain and simple and. It sounds really bad, but the majority of plot devices are cliches because they are there purely as a foil for the main event. Yeah. So yeah. So so that so that part also uh, they don't they don't. They, well, it, it, I find it to be a bit of a shortcoming in, in the book as well, and I wish that he could have been a bit new, a bit, a bit more nuanced as a as a side as a side character and. Yeah, so okay, so so those are my all my general thoughts and feelings for the book, and now we can give our uh, our uh, wind up scores, and this goes from zero zero to a hundred. So Ray, what is your wind up score for everybody? Well, I gave when I rated this on Good Pods, I gave it three out of five, which is now my brain has got to work on mass sixty percent. Hang on, is it sixty? As I said, my maths is appalling. English literature, no problem. French, German, easy. Maths, forget it. So <laughs> it's 60. I'd give it 60 
out of 100, I think, because there are certain things in there that are really good and had promise. And then there were other things that were, I've read this about 10,000 times already in different books. So that's my score, 60 out of 100, which I think is quite generous. And that's that's interesting because for for me, my score would be a bit higher. It would be 70 out of 100. And I think for for me, it's it is the, you know Molly's characterization is the, the driving factor definitely. I really did love love following her story and just getting back to learn to learn about her throughout the book. And and I and, and I would say just uh, as I was reading one, I think I, I did I one of the things I did appreciate is the way that particularly that that she that she that she uh, absorbs her environment particularly through her senses. And because I was, again, I, I was personally reading this from the viewpoint of her being autistic, that was my interpretation. And this is something like, what, you, know, you know, this is probably like when you're on a spectrum, you are more sensitive with your senses, with the smells, you know, you, you know like the, the visuals you're hearing. And I felt like yeah. that which was definitely a focus on that in this book. And I, and I appreciate and I appreciated that. See, I, I, I saw her more as a monk as Adrian Monk, who was OCD because of his grief. And that is how I interpreted her far more Mm, with the cleaning and the obsession with cleanliness and his observational skills. And he was just, he was OCD. Okay, yeah, I can see that actually fitting as well, yes. All right, and then, and and then, okay, yeah, so you're 60, I'm 70. And then, oh yeah, and before, and before, uh, before we move on to the plot breakdown, I also just want to say that there will actually be a, a, a film adaptation of this uh, starring Florence Pugh in the future. Oh, God. Really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, don't sound, you don't sound too excited. Uh, I, I, get the, I get to this point with books where every time someone says, oh, this book has literally just come out. It only came out at the beginning of, the, of January. This book has just come out and we're going to make a film of it. And having been burned so many times by absolutely abysmal film adaptations, even more so when the author is involved, I am really, really disappointed to hear that. I have to be honest. Oof, oof. Uh, okay. Well, I don't, I honestly, I am not a massive fan of, I hated the Pride and Prejudice film adaptation with a passion. In fact, I nearly walked out of the cinema. I oof. like the, I like the BBC version because the book takes longer than an hour and 45 minutes to interpret on screen. And I've always been this way about films. I think there are a couple of really good film adaptations, but they do still miss something. And when you read a book, you don't miss it. And the thing is with a film, when you've seen the film, how many people are going to go, oh, right, I've seen the film. I'm now going to read the book. Uh, I mean, yeah, I'm not sure about that, honestly. I mean, I, I wish, I wish, I wish, would be a bigger population of people who have like who, who saw a movie and then they go on to read to read a book. Whereas it's in, it's more likely that people will read the book if there's no film. Yes. Film if books are a very very different media stream, I think. And yeah, and then, uh, I, I, and I won't say I'm ambivalent about the uh, movie adaptation. Like, you know, I'll, I'll watch it when it comes out. I am just curious as to how this will be translated. And, 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 and then, 
Molly's character again, like again, whether or not she's coded as autistic, like what her you know her her personality, how is that going to be portrayed on the screen? Is the movie going to try to portray her as autistic, or is going to try to not focus on that? Given the reaction that was um, to that film by Sia, I think that they are going to steer about 10,000 miles clear of that particular portrayal. Oh, 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 that's like uh, music with uh, Kate Hudson. Yeah, with Kate Hudson and what's-her-face. Given that particular portrayal, Maddie Ziegler, Ziegler. yeah, given that, I, I do get the feeling that they might stay quite well clear of interpreting a character who isn't categorically stated as being autistic as autistic also also being played who is also being played by an actor who is not who is not on the spectrum think about it did they they never ever ever stated just to use the television version of things they never ever stated anything about sheldon in uh the big bang theory Oh, okay. So yeah, so I haven't seen that. So apparently, so it was never explicitly stated. It was never stated, not okay. not explicitly or anything else. Okay. They constantly, he constantly said, "Oh, I was tested. I'm absolutely fine." Huh. Interesting. So, oh, so he was tested, but he was determined as being not on the spectrum. He says he was, but then I think that. It's one of those things you have to be really careful with because there are a large number of people who can be offended for for good reason. Yeah. Because there are multiple levels of being on the spectrum. Yes. And if you are going to use a character that is not categorically stated as being such and portray them as being such, then you are misinterpreting the author's work to start with, but you're also risking offending a lot of people by stating this is how they act. This is how you act. Yes. Yeah. And also even a, there was actually a, an Amazon a Prime series that I've recently heard of called As We See It. And I, that's on my watch list at the moment. And it focuses on characters who are, who are, who are autistic. Yeah. And I believe, I, I know at least one of the actors is autistic in real life. I'm not sure if it's a whole cast, but I know at least one of the actors is autistic. Yeah, so they probably, but they are stating that quite upfront and from the beginning, yes. these characters are living as neurodivergent, yes. as people with neurodivergent disorders, issues, illnesses whatever yeah and, and they're coping with them yeah that's, that's why I'm, I'm always personally pushing for more you know explicit representation and even you know, like there's even a there's a there's a, a rom-com a, con, a contemporary romance novel called kiss quotient and yeah two, and there are two standalone novels following this and each book features one of one of the mcs is on is, is neurodivergent and it says that it's explicit, it's made explicit. And, yeah, exactly, and what, which and, is why I don't think and Molly and, is. And, and even in this, even in the third book, the, the character who is on the spectrum, she doesn't know that at the beginning, but she gets, but she, but her therapist ends up telling her, like testing her, 
and she realizes that she is on the spectrum. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it, yeah, it, it's still something that I feel conflicted about in regards that's, to As I said, that's, that's why I don't think she is, because the author would explicitly state it so that her character is not misinterpreted. And that's the last thing anybody wants uh, someone to be is misinterpreted their behavior to be misunderstood. However, constantly throughout the, the book, there are the mentions of how much she misses her grandmother, how much she dreads going home because she's going home to an empty house that once was hers with her grandmother and how she opened herself up to trusting people and now she won't. And that is why I honestly don't think she is. I honestly think she is someone who just struggles with everyday life like a lot of people do. Sure, sure. Uh, all right. So, yeah. So, okay. So now, so now we, we have talked about the book for quite, quite a long time, actually, I feel like, which is in the beginning of the episode. And now we're going to head into the, uh, into the spoiler plot breakdown. So, so listeners, if you haven't read the book yet, or uh, then you might want to pause the episode now, or if you don't care about spoilers, or if you have read the book, then you can keep on listening. Now, uh, oh, okay, oh, also a trigger warning. I, I always love to trigger warnings for, for, for the books because here is murder, ableism, parental abandonment, uh, assisted suicide, brief mentions of domestic abuse, and discussion of deportation. And I said, so now I get into the book, and I like this opening prologue, which is yeah. basically, the, the whole thing is basically, the whole thing is basically like, you know, like, as you're made, you know, I do so much for you and know tons about your life, but you're pretty much oblivious about my life because I play such a minuscule role in your eyes, and that makes you think you know, you know what it looks like me. I feel like that was the general, that was the, the core of the prologue. It was also more that she was invisible. Yes, invisible, and... And even like the quote at the end is, I am your maid. I know so much about you, but when it comes down to it, what is it that you know about me? And I, I like that just to, as a, just a, a quick way to introduce us to Molly. And, 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 then, we, and then we move on to the opening of the book and we learned that uh, Molly Gray, she is 25 years old. She's been working at the Regency Grand Hotel for four years as a, as a maid. And and again, like I said before, I love the I love the way that this, that this opening focuses on her her senses, and I, even like the smells. Like I think she focuses on like some melange of ladies' fine perfumes. That's a, a quote from the book. And and she and, and then she also focuses on the on on the, on the cleaning on the cleaning supplies. And I think even at the end of at the end of the first chapter, she what was it? She eats something. Oh, so there's, there's a quote where she says, I put the shortbread biscuit to my lips. It crunches nicely between my teeth. The texture is crisp, the flavor delicate and buttery. Overall, it is a delightful biscuit. It tastes sweet, also very sweet. And other things is, like that. Yeah, she is very focused on her senses, but it's focused on the things that matter to her because. The, the whole process and ritual of making a cup of tea, for example, is something that is mentioned so many times. And I find that personally, as a Brit, I find it very strange reading that in an American-based novel. 
because I don't know many Americans who drink tea the same way as we do over here, says she drinking the last of her cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, that, that was actually a funny thing to read as well, yes, for me. Yes. It, um, it, it did make me wonder several times if her grandmother was potentially had a, a, had English heritage. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure about that. It's funny because re- reading this book, I don't know, like there was something, there was something about the tone of the book. Maybe it, maybe it's a whole um, cozy, cozy mystery tone of it. But I do feel like this could have easily taken place in actually the UK. Yeah. It's, never, it's never specified as, as to whether it's in the US, it's in the UK. The location never specified. So that makes you wonder as to where the movie will take place as well, actually. Yeah, especially as they've cast an English actress. Yes. But I think the thing that actually identified it as US based for me was when they started talking attorneys and the police station and everything that was to do with that. That was incredibly American. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't pick up on that, but yes. And and then she all, and then and then I also I like the bit where she put where she, she when she's talking about her cleaning supplies and she one of the things she points out is how much she loves the quote lightly scented antiseptic garbage bags. Yeah, I, I should turn out to be a nice little detail. <laughs> and and we and we learned that Marty has uh, an estranged mom and uh, Grand her grandma recently passed away from pancreatic cancer. So we don't find out about uh, the cancer right away. That's, I think that's revealed a bit later on. And we also and we also book. don't find out that her mother's already dead as well. Yes. And oh yes, so so there are certain details that uh, we as a reader aren't aware of uh, right away. And so, what do you think of Molly's portrayal as an unreliable narrator? I think she's an incredibly observant narrator. I mean, everything is an inner monologue, which is why, as you were talking earlier about the film, I think that would be something they will struggle with because an internal monologue doesn't work on film. It is very, very, it is is a reliable narrator in a book because we we aren't talking about her observations of other people's thoughts and feelings. These are her own observations. So I think she's quite a reliable narrator of her own life. Well, that's interesting because I, I, when I, when I, I was saying unreliable narrator, as in she isn't, as in she isn't giving us to the audience all the information right away. Like so, there's certain details that she conceals un- until later chapters of the book. Well, especially the last chapter of the book where yes. she reveals that she knows who the murderer is. Yes. But I, d- that's the thing. We can't interpret her as anything more than the reliable narrator until we get that information and discover that she'd been withholding it. Yes. Because until we get that revelation, as far as we are aware as the reader, she is the reliable voice. Yes. She is the person who knows everything and is telling us everything. And she's telling us as readers far more than she's telling the people she needs to. She doesn't tell everything to the police, but we get more than they do. And, yeah, and then I will say, this first chapter, there's definitely... It, it is kind of like, it's definitely a long, like you said, internal monologue. There was a lot of uh, info dumping. And I did find this to be kind of, I, I, I personally, I think, I think I'm, I'm more okay with, uh, with the 
longer sh- chapters that don't that don't get into the action right away. And that oh, have I more love. Of the- I love those. To be honest, I read a lot of books that are very very long chapters that don't get into the action. But I think my frustration with the first chapter isn't so much that it is long; it's the fact that there are it's the time jumps that I find quite jarring. The time jumps, yeah. I- it's funny, actually, I pick up on that, but sometimes I was reading a book and sometimes it was like, wait, we're going back to the past now? Oh, wait, we're going back to the present. Like, so the points where it, where it cuts back and forth between the past and the present were, I don't know, I don't know if murky is the right word. It was just very, it, it, it melts. I feel like it melts into the book easily, where I won't pick up easily on the, on the time jumps. Yeah, which is exactly what I I said at the beginning was where we have that. At the beginning, she's called into the office because she's discovered the body. But it's that jump where I'm now going to go back to what happened at the beginning of the day. So you're going to have the entire journey of the day throughout this chapter. And then at the end of it, we're going to reveal what happened. And it's like, okay, now I'm a bit confused. And if I hadn't been reading all in one go, I probably would have sat there and gone, what happened? <laughs> because it felt like I'd missed something. Yeah, so I, yeah, so I, guess, I guess perhaps the, lo- the non-linear uh, storytelling might not, have been, might not have been as clean as it could have been as easy yeah. process. Exactly. And, and uh, yeah, so, so as you just said, we, we learned that, we learned that, we, we learned that Marty, uh, found Mr. Black, one of the one, one, uh, one of the patrons who's been at the who's been staying at the Regency Grand for a long, long time, and he was found dead in his bed, and Marty was the one who found him. And and then you know, there were certain things I picked up on, like I I, I saw I saw that Giselle was in, in the shower when she was in the shower. I saw it, I immediately thought, oh, like she's cleaning evidence off of herself when she was in the shower. I guess I saw it if she, if she had if she had killed Mr. Black. Yeah, but then you, when you learn how he died, there would have been very little evidence to find. Yes. And and, and it's then, interesting the parallels with how he died and Molly's past. Yes. And and, and we'll, we'll we'll get into that as the, as the yeah. progresses. Yes. And yeah, so Mr. Black, he was a business mogul, and both he and Giselle they were long. Long time repeat customers, and we also meet uh, quite a few other characters in the opening as well. We meet uh, Mr. Alexander Snow. He's the hotel manager. Mr. Preston, the doorman, and uh, Juan Manuel as a kitchen a kitchen dishwasher. And and I guess I, I will express my thoughts on uh, Juan Manuel because I thought that I, I again like he is. Uh, a, I feel like a, a one a one dimensional character, and I just, I found it kind of stereotypical that he is uh, that, that, he, that he's Hispanic, and he's like he he's a he's a dishwasher, and he gets he gets he gets mixed up in the drug operation. Even though I, I I'm glad I'm glad he's not he doesn't fall into in the stereotype where he it where he is like it, it, where he's the kingpin of the operation. Because I feel like that would be even worse. It's just like he got he got tangled up in it, but in the end, it's still like oh, like it's it, it it's a, it's the white saviors who come in and rescue him 
from this like, from this cartel, and so 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 that just kind of uh, bugged me again, like cultural stereotyping. And yeah, I it's, I don't actually read a sounds bad. I don't read a book that deeply to interpret that at all. But the um, I think that that is it sounds really strange. But I interpreted. I'm not sure why, but when I read Charlotte and Mr. Preston, I didn't read them as white characters. I don't know why I didn't read them as white characters, but I didn't hmm, at all. Interesting. And I think it's just the way that they read. So I, I didn't see it as a white savior thing because Molly doesn't save him. In a way, he saves himself because he's the one that goes in and he says he's willing to risk his life in order to save her from getting put in prison for something he knows that she didn't do. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. Because he, he steps up. He didn't have to. He could have done a runner. He didn't have to step up and say, I'm going to say they pressured me. They blackmailed me. I was trying to, he was trying to get his work permit his work visa renewed mm. and Rodney came in and was portrayed himself as a white savior but he was anything but did you personally read Rodney as white because that's how that's how I read him personally oh I, I read him as white definitely yeah and I, I, I'm just glad I, I, I again I feel like if it was someone like, again if one Manuel was in control of, the, of, the, of, the, of this operation that would have been that would have been the cliche yeah if he'd been the one who was in charge and that is what Rodney portrayed him as being yes and that's how he convinced almost convinced Molly well did convince Molly to help by saying this is all these are his friends and you'd be doing us a massive favor if this if you did this it's his bag this is his and all of the while it was almost as though all the while there was this set up a long game being played, a very long game being played. So we and so we learned some clues, like for example, Giselle's yellow purse is missing, and there's, there was a safe in the bedroom closet, which has been it was left open, and some of the items are missing. So Molly, Molly doesn't reveal what those items are in this scene. We, again, we don't find out that detail until later on. To and the paper and in, in his pocket, it was the, the deed. So it became an island seed. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, there were so many there were so many things with that deed. When she said she saw the word deed on this paper, I made a note on my in my Kindle when I was reading it. And it was basically along the lines of just a couple of pages prior to that, there was the talk about how Mr. Black owned loads of property on that street, but he doesn't own this hotel. And my brain immediately went to, oh, he wants to buy the hotel. Oh, okay, that's which yeah, is why, which I, was I an inter- which that. is the interpretation. Uh, yeah, it was one of the things that um, she'd been talking with. Molly had been talking with Mister Snow, and he had pointed out all these buildings that Mister Black owned in the road where the hotel was, mm-hmm. and he was very proud of saying, but he doesn't own the hotel. So when I saw that when the deed was mentioned, my brain didn't go to the Cayman Islands thing because that hadn't been mentioned at that point. Mm-hmm. 
my yeah, brain yeah. immediately went to he's doing a deal for the hotel which opened up a whole world of different potential murderers yeah so, yeah so came that uh that then that was not a deal until later on exactly which is why i thought it was the hotel yeah. and that's why my world of potential suspects was so long it was a really long list at that point and and then also one of the four pillows has gone to and Giselle's and and then we also have we still have Giselle's pill which they were left there so at, at this point I thought it like it clearly looks like like Giselle probably uh drugged her husband and and then the pillows I, I did immediately think like oh oh like whoever killed him definitely is one of the pillows to like to smother him. And that was something I did pick up on, which, you know, obviously is, you know, proven true. Yeah, it is proven true. And and also his shoes are off as well, they're on the other side of the room. And, and, and I she think, wanted yeah. to tidy them up yeah. because yeah, one of them was facing north and one was facing east. I think, oh, wait, uh, south. And, and one was south. It south? And, uh, yeah, I have a quote here. I remember, I remember that distinctly because one shoe pointed south and the other east. And immediately I knew it was my professional duty to point both shoes in the same direction. Yeah, I do the same thing. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I really appreciated her, her, her orderliness in this book. And in my own life, I think I, I, can, I can connect with her on that point because I'm also incredibly organized, probably on an OCD level. And just... Oh, and it's just something in memory where even when I, when I, when I was like young, really young, like maybe two, I don't know, maybe one or two or three, I had this like farm, this farm toy set and there were all of these little figurines. And I, and I was, and apparently I lined them up. I don't, I don't remember this, but apparently I lined them up so neatly, all these, all these little figurines. And, and, and I was, and apparently like my, my, my mom and grandma would tell me that I was so, protective of them like no one else can mess with my toys I have them organized in this neat formation yeah I'm I was the same about anything book related as a child oh my gosh from a very very young age books were if my books were in any order they had to be a precise order I did them at one point they were all in gradient (laughs) color gradient and I spent age I used to spend absolutely hours organizing them every couple of weeks the order would change depending on what my mood was yeah now see for me for, for me it wasn't ordering the, the books like by classification it was by i obsessed over the quality of the books but over like any little tears or little ruffled edges wanting to preserve wanting to preserve the dust jackets as far as possible that was the way I obsessed. I obsessed over the books like, in my collection. Yeah, no, I obsess over making sure that they are in the right order. I don't like the fact that every once in a while they'll release a new copy of my favorite book, and I have to buy a new copy of it because I have to have the new copies. I have yeah. three. One of them is from 1986. <laughs> and then, and then, so. Marty, make, Marty makes her first call into reception after finding Mr. Mr. Black's body. And then there is a point where she, where she, where she says she ends up, uh, she looks in a mirror and she notices something that apparently scares her and then she faints. 
and then this is but she says then, it's her reflection that scares her it was and I actually have a quote. It says, on the wall in front of me was a gold-framed mirror, reflecting not only my terrified face back at me, but everything I failed to notice before. And then, and then she faints. And then we kind of, yeah, it, it just kind of skips past that. Where it's like she, she says she faints, and then she, and then she skips ahead to going to Mrs. Snow's office. And that is, uh, and that is important because we will end up returning to that later on. Yeah, we do return to what happened later but then there's also obvious evidence that she blacks out and she forgets what's happened yes because that happens in the police station when she blacks out and she asks detective stark to take her phone and she doesn't remember doing it yes and and then she and then she made and then she makes a second call she also made a, a second call to reception as well and and i and i was, and I was wondering for this point, did you pick up on what was going to happen? Like, did you think that she saw the, mur- the murderer in the mirror? I, th- I had the suspicion that she was going to get arrested for being the murderer. Um, but I did also suspect that there had to be something else in that room. Yeah. Well, that, 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 more, that more happened. That more happened yes. before or after she fainted. And my suspicions were sort of driven even further when she faints when she's arrested and forgets yes. everything. Yes. It's almost as though she has a, um, she goes into a fugue state. Yes. Yes. Which yeah. is something very common with people who are, in, who are grieving, who have lost yes. someone. Yes. And I also, I, I, I also find this to be a common, it, it reminds me a lot of like the, the sleepwalking trope that are, that's often present in thrillers or any sort of, any, any sort of state where characters can't remember specific memories and it, 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 yeah. it's, it, it's a common it's a common trope something you see a lot in thrillers or in mysteries. yes it is and so, so, sometimes sometimes i feel like it, it isn't executed as well and i feel like here I, I i liked it i thought it was done pretty well actually but- yeah it didn't make her out to be someone who had sides if that makes sense she would she was portrayed as the person she was and that was what you saw was what you got and people knew that about her yes. and they were and I think that's more why they were wary of her yes. because they knew that she was honest without fault and I think the main reason she hid the things she did wasn't an intentional I want to break the law it was because she thought that she was helping people in doing that yes yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Someone like who has, you know, who's who's pretty pretty virtuous, and yeah, end, and you know, just try to do the right thing, which is something I did admire about her. Yes, and and then we on and then we go on to learn about, uh, we learn more about uh, Molly's parents and how they and how uh, Grant said that her parents left between the ages of six months to a year. And uh, we and and then Cheryl Green, who's apparently called Chernobyl behind her back. <laughs> I found but, that quite amusing. But I, I also like this detail where Molly doesn't partake in the name calling because it's too mean for her. And I find it being I find it being another, another interesting characteristic of Molly, where she doesn't like she doesn't she didn't participate in the name calling. She doesn't she doesn't try to actively bully anyone. 
However, there are several times in this book where she has surprisingly graphic fantasies about what she'd like to do to her enemies. Yes, well, wasn't one of them she liked to wrap a belt around their neck and strangle them? And pa- another is she'd like to drown possibly. Cheryl? Possibly. You know, I, I have a few of them written down in my notes. Doesn't she fantasize about when she when she knows that Cheryl is stealing her stealing money she has a fantasy about getting her bucket and drowning Cheryl in her bucket yeah I wait this sounds very familiar this might be it if I come across it into no I'll call it out but yeah and, and I think also the, the contrast the contrast that contrast and her and her personality I found that to be interesting the little like, internal conflict, but she doesn't try. She doesn't make an effort to really try to to spout malice towards people, but that doesn't stop her from having from think from think, from thinking mean thoughts about people inside her head. Yeah, but then that's everybody does that, Was and it, yeah, if anybody yeah. says they don't, they're lying. Oh yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs> but at the same time, I'm. But I feel like it, makes are, more, it, it makes it even it more, makes human. more human. Yeah. exactly. She is methodical in her desire she doesn't I mean she also has a few choice words to say about Charles Black which is what puts her in the black in the sort of the deep end as it were yes. in the first place and, and, and then also and then for, for Cheryl she also called Cheryl both a slovenly and lady those yes. were the exact words also like for for people who for people who she finds to be displeasing. She has she also she also has very specific words to, to describe them. Yeah, I think that is a lot to do with her upbringing. It's a lot to do with her grandmother and the way that she was brought up oh, in the yeah, first place. The, the formality. Think, yeah, the formality of her behavior. And that is something that isn't appreciated now, especially by, by a large amount of the population. Uh, being well-spoken and having a very varied vocabulary, which Molly has, is considered unusual, odd, weird. Yes. And that is another layer to her character. Yes. And... She seems too well-educated to be working as a maid, but she had no choice after everything that happened with their with, with, um, with their Fabergé I know uh, yeah so uh, yeah so uh, let's just let's just talk about that bit now I know we're jumping ahead but man like finding out about Wilbur and how he just stole uh, stole her grand you know Fabergé and for, for our listeners if you haven't read the book that's like the, the saving all of like the all of all of the, the moolah that uh grand has saved up over the years and Wilbur just broke into it one day, just stole it all, and just completely screwed over Molly and Gran. Yeah, and then and, I think and then, he saw he saw her as a soft touch. I think. And and yeah, I, well, you know that that really pissed me off. And then and then and then Molly didn't even feel comfortable enough to tell Gran about that because she didn't want Gran to worry about that. So when Gran was like. Oh, you know, I'll I'll pass away, but at least you will have the You'll Fabergé to take yeah. care of you. And Molly is just like, well, but she can't because she, because she also because she also talks about it will help it will fund your education. Mm-hmm. 
So obviously she was going to, well, she talks about it at the end of the book, obviously, with what her plans are. But I do, Wilbur was an interesting and unusual and in many ways unnecessary addition to the book. Interesting. He wasn't necessary. He wasn't a needed character because he isn't in the book. We don't ever meet him. We hear of him and his actions, and we witness them through her looking back at what happened. Hmm. But she never encounters him again, so she never gets the opportunity to do what she wants to do to him, um, which isn't pleasant. <laughs> but at the same, she so she never gets her revenge. And it feels like it was. It was. It, you felt like it was. It was. It was, it was, it was a, yeah. It was a plot that went nowhere. Yeah, I, 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 I suppose it would have. It would have been nice to see that thread wrapped up. Yeah, exactly. That would go. And I think had it been, that would have been. It would have been another layer to her character. Whereas we get to see her anger and her frustration at it happening, but we don't get to see him get his comeuppance, which he should have done. But yeah. unfortunately, in many con man cases, they don't. So, <laughs> <laughs> but it it was, it just felt like a plot point that was not needed. Sure, sure. And, and, and then, uh, also going back to Cheryl, she also apparently used, used the same cloth to wipe the sink and the toilet. Ooh. To teach, to get, it was to teach I guess a lesson for barely tipping her. Yeah, and, and she also it's... she also steals Molly's tips, and she I and I all of the maids. I think she steals all of her tips. Yeah, it's just like oh, I do not like Cheryl. Yeah, she was kind of the anti Molly. Yes, yeah, that's an appropriate description. Yeah, but I I found her um her revenge was microaggressions. Yes, because I mean, as Molly said, what's I can understand it's disgusting, but they're never going to know. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's invisible. Passive, passive it's a very yeah, it's it's a passive aggressive microaggression. Yeah. She's oh, they treat us like rubbish, and it's like, well, no, they don't. It sounds awful, but you are. It is a job, and you are. It's kind of like the old the old adage with children, seen and not heard. You're there to do the job, and some if you do the job well, you are rewarded. She doesn't do the job well. Yes. At all. <laughs> she is a very, very bad maid. And, and lady, somehow, as Marty called her. Yeah, exactly. And she, somehow she got promoted to... The head maid. Head maid. And it's like, okay... Um, they clearly weren't paying attention the day that that reward was handed out. Well, so I feel like that happens so often, I feel like, in real life, obviously. Yeah, oh, oh definitely. Place. But she also is the first person to stab Molly in the back with, oh, she's rubbish at her job, and she was always doing this, and, oh, she, I saw her doing that. And it's like, and she stole from the rooms. And it's like, hang on a second, isn't this you? Yes, and and then Molly is also slipping uh, one man Wild's uh, key card so we can stay in the hotel rooms, and you know at, at, at this point it's implied that he is homeless, and he and we also notice that he has the, the, the burn marks on his wrists. Yeah, 
and and then we all, and then we also meet the head bartender Rodney Stiles at the socials, hotels, restaurants, bar, and grills. And I I I found him to be skippy right away. It's like it's to point. Molly Molly is very taken with him, but just from this first scene, I was just like, no, no, there's something sus about you. But there was also, wasn't there also an indication that they'd had a date previously? Yes. I, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm it, sure because she, she mentioned that. At this point, it was the first round, it was, she called it a rendezvous. The first one happened over a year ago. It does. Yeah, exactly. So, so they had had relations previously and she wanted, she still was enamored of him. Mm-hmm. And and then she and then she also she she, she makes note of his hair of his hair. I remember this being kind of a funny point where she's like there's a quote where she says, "Anyhow, the point is he isn't hairy. How any woman could like a hairy man is beyond me. Not that I'm prejudiced. I'm just saying that if a man I fancied was hairy, I get so waxed out and I rip his strips off him until he was clean and bare." Yeah, I did. I did find that quite amusing when I yeah, read no, that. She, I have she, to be honest. She, she, yeah, she, she. I think this book actually. I haven't said this before, but this book's actually quite funny because she. Yeah, she, there she, are there she are moments. She delivers this in such a, a deadpan manner, and it just accentuates the comedy for me when she's saying these things like, "Oh, like waxing him," or even again, like the the graphic fantasies that she has about what she wants to do to people to harm them. Yeah, I think that she is far funnier than people give her credit for, but only in her head. Yes, and which almost makes me wonder how that I, again, like how how that be translated to the movie? Would a movie try to cop, try to uh, try to translate this style of humor? I feel like it could possibly. I feel like it it could like do a a very dry sense of humor but it won't work the same way as it's all internalized. So if she starts saying to these people, do you know what? I, I think wonder- that I want to drown you. <laughs> I don't think it's going to go down quite as well as it does in the book because we know that it's her internal voice saying it rather than her blurting out. I'm going to murder you, by the way. Or, I <laughs> because that's if- just going to make her look guilty. <laughs> or I guess once Pew could do an internal voiceover, possibly for the movie. Yeah, I know, but then, yeah, it's, I imagine that'd be quite difficult for subtitles. <laughs> yeah, and, and it, but, but we also, but she also makes note of the fact that Roddy's just, like, she can see a bit of his chest and his smooth, for the most part, except for one small round scar on his sternum, which we, do, which we come back to Yes, we do. And, and then we also have a newspaper article about the, the Black Empire and how Mr. Black's death has been has been shaking it up, and there's a whole battle about who who could. I think it's Victoria because Victoria is gonna his I, daughter. I think, yeah, his daughter. She's gonna inherit it, I think, at this point. And it sounds like she yeah. already she already pretty much manages the organization, anyways. And she wants, and the the whole thing with the organization is they've only him and Giselle have only been married for two years. So their marriage is relatively new. Because there's and also Mrs. Black, the first, the first, the first woman Black. who was married to him. And then there are also the two sons who were described as flakes by, by Mrs. Black. Yeah, they're, they're described as something worse later on, I think. 
<laughs> she's not very complimentary about her sons at yes. all. Yes. Because they're, they're turning into her husband. Yes. And yeah. I mean, the thing is, the more you read, the more suspects sort of come out of the woodwork. Mm-hmm. So it's until you get to the core of the plot and you actually find out what's behind everything, which sounds awful, but it's very, very cliched. I yes. think that the the entire plot behind the murder, it would have been so much better if it had been about the, the hotel. Um, <laughs> in my view, there would have been so many suspects. It's not true. With this one, they slowly whittle it down. And once they realize what the purpose of the murder was, what was behind it all it's like you know what I know exactly who did it and I know yeah. why yeah yeah I, again I, I saw certain things coming like, I, I I wasn't sure like for example Vardy I wasn't sure if he was a murderer but I knew that he, he was there was something going on with him and as we do find out later on there is but yeah yeah there are certain things that I found to be that yeah predictable like that and as, as someone who reads a lot of mysteries and thrillers I do tend to hold a high bar for mysteries that have like, you know, just amazing twists that are well set up to have a, you know, a consistent internal logic yeah. And I agree. I do tend to, I'm one of these people have to be honest that if there's a bestseller, I don't immediately pick it up as a rule because I want to, a perfect example is Me Before You. When that first came out, everybody, I was commuting on the train every day to work. Everyone was reading that book. Mm-hmm. I waited three years <laughs> to read the book. I know, because I, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to yeah. hear everybody going on about it all the time. I wanted to make my own judgment. And once the furore died down about it, it was actually quite easy to pick up the book in a secondhand bookshop and read it without everybody going oh have you read that bit there yet because by the time it, I came around to reading it a lot of people had gone on to the next big thing yeah I know I heard about how much like how much the hit that was and then of course it, 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 it also had the movie adaptation as well yeah let's not go there um <laughs> let's not go there at all but yes it was I know um I read it again I've read it a few times and I read it again for a podcast I used to do. And the person I read it with was less than complimentary about it. She, in fact, she pulled it apart. And all I could think was, yeah, it must be a British thing. <laughs> because that, that particular genre is incredibly popular over here. And I think it's growing in popularity in the US now, but it never used to be. And I think it's popularity came about because of the film yeah yeah the book was that i think the movie i mean i think the movie was definitely popular here in america i will say i have not consumed either the book or the movie i just i've heard certain things about me before you and i've just it's it's turned me off of wanting to consume it i maybe i might read it or watch the movie sometime in the future but just for now i'm just not interested yeah i think i think the book for me is personally better than the film but then okay. they tend to be anyway, in my personal view. And yeah. I think I'm I do think that for someone who is more focused on the trigger warnings thing that I don't tend to do, I'm not that generation. Um, and I do think it is a generational thing. 
it is one of those books that there are certain things that might trigger some people because there is talk of assisted suicide at Dignitas in Switzerland and it is something that a lot of people have issue with. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, that's interesting you bringing that up. I uh, we'll talk about the ending. I I'll, I'll say we'll save the ending for the ending, just because, you know I don't want to jump ahead too many times, but yeah. we'll we'll get back around to that at the end. And anyway, yeah. So so and then there was also a, small, a point when we cut back to the morning, and Mr. Black he he left curtly, I think, and then and then Jazar was taking a shower. And then, as I said before, the yellow purse. Molly makes note of the yellow purse, and so there's, there's, there's a flight itinerary that's popped that's uh, inside the purse because it, it, the, the purse is open and the itinerary is inside. And two one-way flights uh, to the Cayman Islands. And Molly also uh, notices inside the safe there's a passport, just one passport, and some documents and a lot of money. And, and, and Molly here is just out sobbing also. And, and then she also makes note of just how it's unlike her to forget to tip Molly. And it's also unlike her to be rude. Yes. She is yeah. incredibly abrupt with her, which is out of character for how she has been in the past. And yeah, I was definitely, I, and I was suspecting that maybe she had to do with the murder, with the murder as well. I was I was expecting that, especially after she starts to confide in Molly about the um, abuse yes. that she is going through and everything else. But then, I think the thing that strike struck me so so boldly with that was she had no real motive because she had nothing to gain. Hmm. Because there was a, they had a prenup in which she signed away rights to everything. So if he dies, she gets nothing anyway. Yes, that's true. That's true. So her motive, what was her motive for it? Because if she, if she killed him, all she achieved is she's a widow and she has nothing. Hmm, yes, yeah, that's, that's true. That's a good point. Which yes. she'd have if she left him. <laughs> and. Oh, and then here's one. So here's one of the things that she uh, when when Molly is fantasizing about about Cheryl, and she says, "I I fantasize about all the things I would do: spray bleach in her face, strangle her with a bathrobe tie, push her off the balcony. If I ever caught Cheryl red-handed stealing t- stealing tips from one of my rooms, that is one of the one of the moments." Yeah. There. And she is, I mean, she's understandably angry about that. I think anybody would be, especially oh, yeah, when you consider definitely. that she actually sees how much these tips are when she goes into one of the rooms before Cheryl has a chance to go in there. Yes. But, uh, yeah. I, I know. Yeah. Cheryl, oof, oof, she infuriates me. But in the scheme of things, she's a very, very small cog. Yes. I mean, there are a lot of characters in this book who are so minor it wouldn't have made a difference if they hadn't been there at all. Yeah. And I always look at that when I look at books. I mean, characters that their existence makes very little difference. Mr. Snow. Mr. Snow, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Wilbur Brown, Cheryl Green, the mm. other two um, maids who work in the hotel. Oh, I, I think Neither sun, of those sunshine, sun, sunshine and Sunisha, if I yes. correctly. Neither of them have any massive 
importance. There's no big role for them to play. Hmm. The only characters that really have any main role are Giselle, Charlotte, one, Mr. Preston, Mr. Black, Detective Stark, Molly, and Rodney. Yeah, I, well, I think I, personally, I would say that I feel like Cheryl, like in, in the end, she, does, she is a minor character, but I feel like she is, I feel like it's kind of necessary to have someone there as opposition to Molly. Again, like you said, as you said earlier, she's the anti-Molly. She is need, the anti-Molly. We, need, a, we but, need someone to represent that. And granted, she isn't plot-centric. She isn't a point of the plot. But I think maybe character-wise, in regards to Molly's development as a character, I think maybe she is a little more important. Someone to have, again, have that contrast. Then she should, I think, if that's the case, maybe her role should have been bigger. Yeah, I guess more, in my, more in central, my personal feeling. More yes, central more central. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I see that. And then, and then, and then uh, Detective Stark is when Detective Stark comes in and she takes uh, Molly down to the police station so she can give her witness statements as the first person to find uh, Mr. Black's body. And, and then we learn some more things about how like the, the pills were Giselle's. And we, there's also the flashback to Molly's time uh, with Giselle and... And so, so what do you think about this, about this here, the information we were learning in this interrogation? It's interesting, but at the same time, we then later learn it's not all everything. So... Yeah, I think, yeah, we, we, there's, even, like, there's even the second interrogation, and we do, like, we, we tread this ground again. Yes. I think that we have that we get a better picture but there is also that hint of we think that you had something to do with it beneath every single question that they ask her. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's it's quite obvious that they have already identified their target at yeah. this point. Because also, has anybody else been questioned? Because you yeah. know that that would have been, oh, well, they escorted such and such or they questioned this person. But it's kind of like you discovered the body. This is missing. It was your room. We've yes. heard that you've done this. We've heard that that happened. You are our main suspect. Yes. But what's think, her motive? <laughs> yes, and then also um, it it also doesn't help that Molly outwardly comes off as such a, a stiff and kind of like a, a blunt person, kind of st- very very standoffish. Yeah, she seems un- she seems unemotional about the whole thing. Yes. But then if you didn't really know somebody, why would you have an attachment to them? I mean, she she does mention quite a few times. Every time I saw him, he barged past me. He was rude. Yeah. He was dismissive. He didn't acknowledge her. So he wasn't somebody that she knew in any way apart from through what was what Giselle told her. Giselle was the person that she knew. Yes. And, yeah, and, and I feel like, I feel like that was where, I, I feel like, I, so again, going back to, what, to whether or not uh, Molly is meant to be coded as, as autistic, that is where I was reading this, and I was picking up on the way that everyone was always making fun of, of Molly. And calling her robotic, and even like I think I think there's one point where they're calling her a, a Roomba. Yeah. And I think that was where I picked up because that's why I wanted chicken warnings. I said earlier with ableism, and I feel like that was what I feel like this was a, ableism coming in. 
and then and now I'm reading and so yeah and that and that's why I was like wait so if she is so if she isn't coded as autistic then everyone making fun of her are they supposed to be picking up are they supposed to be thinking she's autistic on the spectrum or are they just taunting her because she's different or, or, they're, or they're just talking about her because she's detached she does her job she goes home at the end of the day and she switches off yeah which is what a lot of people do I mean I don't go into my office every day and sit there and confide everything about whatever I'm doing I go in, I get my work done and I go home. Yes. I mean, I am on the spectrum, but at the same time, it's what most people do. They don't, you don't go to work. It sounds bad, but you don't go to work to make friends. You go to work to do a job that you get paid for. And that is what Molly is doing. She is going to work. She is doing her job and she's doing it well. And that's then that's she is, and then she's going, and then she's going home. She doesn't socialize with them, but she does say, but I do like a party. Yeah, That's one of her lines. She says, I do like a party. Yes. yes. But people don't invite her because she's seen as someone who goes into work and work is what she does when she goes there. But she has a lot to do in mm -hmm. a very limited amount of time. And she is judged on that. So, yeah, I think that it is purely because she has this structure to her processes yes. that they are somewhat jealous of, maybe, because she can go in and just get her work done. Yes. And, and, then, oh, and, and then we also, we also learned that uh, Molly, Molly was very, I think, meticulous. And so, yeah. so, she, 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 so there's even a quote where she says, I did my due diligence and reported all of these infractions and more to Mrs. Snow. And these are all, all stuff like finding, say, like a cousin rod and, a, and, a, and like one of the hotel rooms and it was taken out of its hinges or a hot plate that was just left out on the bathroom, on the bathroom counter. And to report all of this stuff, like again, like very detailed. Yeah, that, that that kind of stuff is kind of dangerous anyway. <laughs> a hot plate in the bathroom, yeah, that's <laughs> a good idea. And a curtain rod could um, quite easily, if it's off its hinges, it could cause damage to somebody. Yes. So she is doing her job, and she's doing it well. And and, and and but then Mr. Snow, it seems like he wasn't appreciative of that. It seemed like she was kind of annoying him. At least, I don't but if, if she was kind of a if she was kind of annoying him, he wouldn't present her with an award for being the best employee. And he does that regularly because that's something else that Cheryl points out that annoys her. Yes, that, that, that's true. That's true. I just, I, I just thought that he was, that she was maybe annoying him because it, it even, like I have the note here where it says like he, like he was praising her, but it also says that he wasn't smiling and his, like his lips remained a perfect horizontal line. And I just interpreted that as being, oh, like maybe, maybe he feels like he, was, he isn't being helpful. Sometimes pr um, pr providing work, more work for somebody else isn't helpful. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You think about it, if somebody came up to you and said, oh, by the way, there's another hour's worth of work and it's got to be done before you finish and you've got half an hour, would you be sitting there going, thank you for that? Or are you blinking, kidding me right now? Yeah, yeah, I, I understand that. And 
Oh, and, and then and, and again, we also get the, the sad facts, like I said before, to I think to to Molly and Giselle's friendship. And you know, Giselle is opening up to her, talking about basically how much her life sucks and the trouble with her marriage. And we and and she also has the bruise. And and what do you think of the, the dynamic between the two of them? I think it's quite interesting. I mean, one thing that is highlighted is the fact that Giselle admits that she came from nothing and she had nobody. And she thought that marrying money was going to solve all her problems. So in a way, she is like Molly in that she has she had nothing. And the problem is she thought marrying money would give her would solve the problem. And all it's done is cause more. So yeah, she so, needed somebody to confide in that would understand that. And the and I think that's why they, they in, connected. That's why they connected, I feel yeah, like, because they have similar backgrounds. Exactly. And the people in her social circle would never understand, oh, I married my husband because I thought that he would help me, would give me the life that I want, and it would be better. And she, she said herself, I signed my prenup. I don't want anything but that but the house I want a home and that's all she wanted out of the whole thing was a home and they spend all of their time in various hotels he doesn't have a home base and that's what she wants and that's what she thought she was going to get with him she thought she was going to get security Mm -hmm. yes and and then uh, there's also a point where where we learned that Giselle she gives big tips and she, and she also gives Molly kind of like a, a rom-com style makeover. And Molly isn't really into it, but she thanks Giselle anyways because she's been taught to always show gratitude for the nice things people do for her and, 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 and her compliments. And he, she also gives her a gift though, doesn't she? Of that time piece. Oh, yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah the, the, the timer. Yeah, she gives her that timer. Yeah. and Which Cheryl is immediately jealous of. Yes. And I think, again, I think that also uh, is another example of Marty's formality. Again, the way she was brought up. Yeah, to, oh, you definitely. Know, say thank you. Say thank you. And, and she appreciates that sort of formality. Yes. And, 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 and Giselle, she also admits to being jealous of Marty's independence. And, Marty, and then Marty advises her to leave, to leave Mr. Black, but... Especially, but I think it's just how he says the time heals all wounds. Yeah, but Molly is also, but then those words come back to bite Molly later on. <laughs> and and then we return to the present day after this flashback. Ask Detective Stark, ask Molly if she's always ever talked to her, and she lies. She's like, no, 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 she never talked to me to cover up for Giselle. Yeah, because she thinks she's doing her a favor at that point. Yes, and and then we and then and then next is we have to flashback to uh, Gran and Molly's uh, to Gran and Molly and and then also Molly's uh, relationship with with Wilbur, and and then also uh, I think it was either Gran or Molly I think who called Wilbur a bad egg, and I guess brought up that phrase about a few times throughout the, throughout the novel, which is funny because think- it's like he stole the Fabergé. So yeah. funny to see himself as a bad egg. Molly, Molly calls him that because she never ever reveals to her grandmother what he's done. 
And as far as her grandmother was concerned, he was okay. Otherwise, she'd have never let her. Oh, yeah. Bring it, him was, in the yeah house. it was Molly. It was Molly. It was Molly who calls him a bad egg. Yes. Because of the Fabergé. And obviously, because he's left her in such a difficult situation that she mm-hmm. could never confide in anybody about. Yes. And. Oh, and and then we and then we also we also cover uh, Grant taking Molly to Regency Grand. I think when Molly was what was a kid, and what, yeah, and then also Molly and oh no, uh, Grant taking Molly to, to the hotel and then Molly getting hired. And there's yes. a moment also when Mr. when Mr. Preston uh, looked at Grant apparently like in a funny way, and Molly couldn't interpret. And did you pick up on anything there that that something would unfold from that from from that? No, I didn't. However, obviously, something does unfold from that, though it, that is also open to interpretation at the end. Yeah, I think I, I did. I did pick up on that. I did read that, and I was like, "Oh wait, I think I, I suspected that they had been in a relationship in the past." And obviously, yes, yes, that did prove to be the case. And and then and then as we covered before, we you know Wilbur. Uh, Molly ends up meeting Wilbur at community college, and they, they date for a while, and then he steals the Fabergé, and and even uh, even he definitely he definitely displays some some red flags. Yes, like but he, he doesn't sa- display them initially. They are initially. things that develop over a very very short period of time. It's as though a, like stealing a, a calculator. A is, yeah, a sw- a switch is flicked. Yes, and you realize that he isn't quite the nice person he portrayed himself to be and Molly interpreted him as being. And even when he's like, when he's spouting the nonstop commentary on Columbo to show that Molly and Gran loved watching together. Yes. And And they also loved National Geographic fantasizing about movie or traveling and Miss Marple. Yes, which yes. I found quite interesting. Yes. Oh yeah, and then also uh, Molly, she also has read the uh, Agatha Christie novels, a lot of them more than more than once, I believe it was specified. Yes. And and, and then and then also uh, Grant is reluctant to she was reluctant to reveal her pancreatic cancer as well, and then Molly is actually quite resistant to the diagnose, diagnosis, and I found this to be a heartbreaking moment to read. And and it's even when like when Grant is refusing to go to the hospital. Yeah. And is it awful that I was kind of detached because I've been there? <laughs> <gasps> my gra- my grandmother passed away of lung cancer and I was her carer. So I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt, and this was kind of it wasn't I was almost detached from it because of that. I think that it could have been far more emotional if if we'd known her grandmother. Interesting. Because because it seemed very perfunctory. That's interesting. And And I have read a lot of books that made me cry. So (laughs) this one didn't. Interesting. Yeah, I've I've had a lot of books that have maybe have that same reaction, and maybe not maybe not quite for the maid, but you know I I I I, did, I think I emotionally it connected with me. 
Yeah, I didn't I didn't have an emotional connection with any of the characters in this book, which was quite frustrating because I wanted to. Interesting. Uh, not, I mean, not, I could, not, not even Molly. No, not even Molly. I I found her. I mean, she was an interesting character, but I didn't. I wasn't sitting there going, oh, I really want this to happen. And I really want that to happen, which is quite often what I will feel and emote when I'm reading a book. I didn't. Um, the book that I'm going to recommend later is one that had me in tears because I really, really felt for the characters. Interesting. Well, you know, like, you know, different viewpoints, different viewpoints. And, and then also this moment where Mr. Snow, he calls to tell Molly that Cheryl called in sick for the day shift tomorrow. So Molly has to replace her. And, you know, again, just like, you know, Cheryl just like calling in sick. It's like, uh, uh. Because of because of what happened. Yes. And that's why she called in sick because of what happened. And it's like, yeah, okay, but you didn't clean that room. You didn't find the body, but whatever, you're a wimp. Yeah. And then and then Giselle is moved up to the hotel second floor. And and then and then Rodney apparently asks out uh Molly. And he also has a, a black eye. And like and he, he he makes an excuse he makes up an excuse for this, I think. I think what like he was helping Juan Manuel. Yeah. And One he, of the, another another of the things that I found very interesting about when Giselle was moved up to the down to the second floor from the penthouse. Mm-hmm. And that was the fact that Mr. Snow said, You're not going to be cleaning her room. Yes. That was I, I found that quite interesting given the fact that you'd have thought that Giselle, especially when we later have that conversation, Giselle says, Oh, I will ask him to have you clean my room. And then she gives her more money. And it's like, hang on a second. Why wasn't she cleaning your room? And yeah. surely she'd only be cleaning the rooms that she was meant to. Yeah, and it's the I've way he actually moment, directly, actually. the way that he actually directly says to her, you won't be cleaning her room. As though it has been requested that she doesn't. Uh, so also in this chapter, uh, we, we also have a run-in with Mr. With Mr. Rose, with Mr. Rosso. Molly's a landlord. A landlord, is, yeah. Just being and, really strict and pressuring her to pay the rent. And what do you think of him? Because he was also, I feel like, a minor, a minor character who wasn't really plot-centric. But he was slimy, and his name was Mr. Red. Oh, Russell. Okay, yeah, I didn't pick up on on that either at first. <laughs> <laughs> These are all the things I was picking up on as I was reading it. Were it's Clue, the characters we have: Green, Brown. Gray, black, stark, snow, and rosso, which is Italian red. for red. Red. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's interesting. And what what do you think about him? Because again, I I feel like he is kind of like con- he was a con sh- merchant. Cheryl, Cheryl, or the other minor characters, well, like Mr. Snow, who aren't uh, who who aren't really necessary to the plot. Yeah, he was. He was, again, a character that was, I think he was less than Cheryl in the hierarchy of the story. It was almost as though he was put, it was as though he was put in there purely so that there was another thing for us to go, oh, poor Molly. Not only has she had all this money stolen, but now she's got to worry about her rent as well. And finances. Yeah. And it was, it was another layer that felt... 
extraneous. Yeah, exactly. Extraneous to the plot because, I mean, she did, did she need any more? And if they'd made more of a, a thing about it at the beginning, I think it would have been different, but they didn't. I almost wonder. They didn't introduce him as somebody who they'd had any issue with or none of the problems with the property were mentioned or yeah. anything else until she was judging them and looking at them through somebody else's eyes. There was no mention of the fact that the building didn't have an elevator, that there were stains in the ceiling, that the fire door was cracked. None of those things really had any bearing on the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I almost wonder if the cast if the, was this big, specifically to squeeze in the color related names you know what i mean just kind of, to kind of cram in some of the but minor then they characters could, but then with some of it they could have done i mean they gave we had mr preston for example he didn't have a color name neither did rodney yeah that's right yeah so why didn't so they, they have c- color names if, and, yeah, and, exactly. they are more, and they are more much more plot centric so why didn't they have colored names if you, yeah precisely if that's, if that's the goal yeah, that, that's it exactly. It's, it's almost as though they were, as you said, shoved, shoved in so that they could have the color, the, the names of the colors in there. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it was like they were misdirect. Yeah, possibly. Like, you know, the slate of hand trick that a magician uses. If you're yes. paying attention to this, I can slip this under the I can yeah. slip this under the under the cover and you won't notice it until Red I put it out as an ace. Yeah, exactly. They were, but I think that it was not so much red herrings as actual misdirects so that other things could be placed in with their plot point that were mm-hmm. relevant. Mm-hmm. And, and, then we, and then we go on, to, we also learn about, uh, about Molly and her, her and because she, as she's preparing for her upcoming date with Rodney, she also has flashback to uh, to walking into room three hundred five about it was a year and a half ago, and finding Rodney and Juan Manuel, and then like like these two you know behemoths like two, two men with facial tattoos, yeah, who were in the room and doing something that. I, I, even like when I was reading this, I was definitely like, oh, this is very dubious, like something's going on here like this does the duffel bag well it wasn't only the duffel bag because they mentioned that there was dust um, a lot of dust everywhere no it wasn't the dust it was the donut sugar on the on the side it wasn't donut sugar (laughs) yeah yeah he even mentions who who ate a donut and put it down on this without a plate kind of thing and it's it's highlighting that she is observant but naive and then all of a sudden, all of that is irrelevant because Rodney's asked her out on a date and she's got to go and buy a dress. Yes. So it's highlighting the difference between then and now with the fact that she went off and bought this dress without a single thought because she could use her savings and now she has none. So when yes. she's asked out on another date by Rodney for the same reason, mm-hmm. she doesn't have the same amenities and the same ability to go and buy something to make herself look pretty mm-hmm. and oh yeah oh yeah and i think there's even a i have in my notes here she was a point when she was like when she was buying stuff and she has like a a polka dot top and skinny jeans and 
quote unquote kitten healed. They did not have kittens on them, so far as I could tell. That was a, that was one of the quotes like when she was getting the kitten healed, and I found that to be humorous. Yeah, that they is. Didn't have kittens. Well, kitten heels don't. They're uncomfortable as anything, though. <laughs> heels are really narrow, but yeah, it's. I think that her observations when it comes to her clothes and everything, she's got no interest in fashion. And the only time that it crops up that she's concerned about her appearance is when it comes to somebody who is undeserving of that attention and that care. Yes. And, and then, and then, uh, and then on that first, on that first, you know, quote unquote date with Rodney, she learns that from him that Juan is an, an undocumented migrant because his work permit ran out. So it's kind of like working under the table and Rodney's been helping him out. And this is when Rodney recruits Molly to give him, to give him the key cards for the hotel rooms so that Juan can take, that Juan Manuel can take refuge in. And, and, and then at, at, at this point, I was even like, man, like Rodney sure does want Molly to know that double back was Juan, but Juan Manuel, it's not his. I really yeah, was she really... Was... But he also is very, very careful to let her know that these are his friends, not Rodney's friends, but one's yes. friends as well. Yes. He's very careful to let her know that that is the lay of the land and everything, even though she has no clue what the heck was going on in that room. Yes. And and, and we also learned that uh, Rodney was disowned by his family. We learned that bit as well. In the, on yes. His and then... And, and and then now we cut back to the present with her. I, I, it was yeah, her, her second date with Rodney, and now she's telling him that she, you know he hopes the police didn't question Molly about Juan Manuel, which she notes is a quote a perplexing line of inquiry unquote. And then she tells him about about Giselle's uh, pills, the tickets, you know itinerary and so on, and he asked, and he's like, did the cops ask about me? Which, you know, I found that, you know, very suspicious as well. And Well, the whole, his whole line of questioning is very suspicious considering she is under the impression they're on a date. Yes. And, and then even the way it ends when, when, when they leave and Mr. Preston does one Molly, you know, he, and, he's, and he's like, because that dear girl is a frog and not all frogs turn out to be princes. princes. Not wrong. <laughs> Yeah. I think that he's looking out for her for multi- a multitude of reasons. Yeah. But at the same time, she's 25 years old and she's already made the biggest mistake yeah. in confiding in anybody that yes. is pretending to be her friend. Yes. And, and, and that's, why, that's why I do like the point where she ends up at the end of, of, of the book, actually. And for, yes. you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that, but, and, and, then, and then we also, we, we also come up to the point where Giselle ends up, um, ends up meeting Molly at her apartment and asking her to fetch a gun that Giselle hid up in the bathroom fan back at the Regency Grand. And this is, in again- how sweet. So at the, beginning, at the beginning of this particular chapter, Molly says Mr. Preston is wrong about, you know, the fog's princess thing. And she also says that minus the smooth chest, Rodney entirely lacks amphibious qualities. She's wrong there. <laughs> Definitely wrong there. 
but he's more a toad. <laughs> to be honest. Yes. There are certain qualities about him. I mean, he is very obviously disinterested. He's yes. not at all interested in her for any reason other than what he sees that she can give him when it comes to alibi and... I know, yeah, it's so, it's so clear that he was using her. And... Oh, very, very clear to everybody apart from her. But then when you're in love, which she seems to think she might be with him, you don't tend to observe fault. Yeah, 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 yeah like pointing out to him, yes. Yeah, exactly. And... and... Oh, and, and then uh, I forgot to mention earlier, Molly would tend to say a lot, like, here's a tissue for your issue, if people seem upset. And she would give them, like, she would actually, like, literally give them a tissue. And 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 then and when Giselle meets her at her apartment, Giselle tells her to stop saying that, because she's like, you know, other people are going to interpret this in a rude fashion. Even if you're meaning this to be nice, if, you want, if you're trying to be kind, people will take this unkindly. And... Yeah, but there are a few things that she says that people would interpret that way. But they are things that her grandmother would have told her were polite to say. Again, yeah, it's formal. Exactly. She was brought up to have manners, to be polite and conscientious. And that's how her grandmother trained her to be. Yes. So in a, in a, a way, she's carrying that over. And there are certain mannerisms that are encouraged at the hotel because of the type of hotel it is. Yes. And, and then even when, even I think we, you were saying this earlier about Molly and Giselle coming from similar backgrounds. And, you know, I think we learned that here where Giselle even said, you know, because Molly is embarrassed about what she believes is the uncounted state of her apartment, but Giselle says it reminds her of a home in Detroit. And I think her mom and grandma are, are gone. And you know, she says like you know again like 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 you like we were pointing out before, she's out you know admits that she doesn't own any property, and she hasn't. She says that essentially when she married him, she has now got less, and she's to him she's worthless. Mm-hmm. Yes, and then and then even when and then even when she asked Mister Black if he could you know avoid the prenup or at least give her to Cayman Islands villa. He just went, you know, apoplectic. Yeah, because her she, a gold digger. But that's because she even and he, said and he threw, it's because and he even she said the word. Wedding ring away, away. Yeah, but it's because she said, I want a home base. She used the word home. And that's what flipped him out. She yeah, even like, says impl- that it was the minute that I said that. go away from him. Yeah, but also implying that she wanted to be settled. Yes. Because they have a very nomadic lifestyle, yes. which suits his particular business down mm-hmm. to the ground, but it doesn't suit her. Mm-hmm. And it's not what she wants. And, and, then, and then Giselle also claims that she got Molly's address as she's leaving from someone she can't remember at the hotel. And I, I found that pretty suspicious as well. And I was like, wait, does she get it from Rodney maybe? Yeah. And was yep, yep. And then Molly gets gets uh, Giselle's gun, and then she also ends up finding Mr. Black's wedding ring, as well. And uh, in her it, vacuum and, cleaner. And, 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 yep, yeah. It, it was the old. It was the old uh, filter. Yes. And and she sells it. Yep, she ends up selling it, which only only 
it only takes a, a deeper hold for her later yes on. exactly it's it's when she's more, when she when she plants it off more motive yes but of course that's cheryl that tells everybody i followed her she sold it <laughs> and she and stole it, it. <laughs> yes and oh and and, and then uh, also, Molly, she does. She gives a two hundred dollars to Mister Mister Rosso for the rent as well, and uh, oh, and and then also, so now, so then we also have a flashback to Mister Snow's sort of like his professional development class. Remember, we have yeah, a lot. Like we have a lot teachings. of flashbacks. Yeah, we have a lot of flashbacks to the classes and the the seminars that Mr. Snow, uh, Mr. Snow did yeah, throughout like the, her training. The B, he uses like the B metaphor. It's like everyone yes. lives in the hive and they're all, don't, they're all contributing to the greater good. And this is where we also run into some of the, the, the name calling as well. Like some of the students are clearly, you know, they're, they're clearly being mean towards, towards Molly. Yes. Well, that's the thing. I mean, she respects her employer yes. as you respect, as as kids, you're taught to respect your elders and those in positions of authority. Not always a sensible move, depending on who they are, but you are taught that as children. And she obviously, the lesson has stuck with Molly. So she is respecting him when she shows acknowledgement of what he has told them. Yes. And, you know, we, we, we've been referring a lot to her, to a very like you know, I would, I would say I would say like a you know again formal, very courteous you know upbringing, and I think it, even one of the one of the, one of the nicknames that people that the other people were calling her was a formality freak. Yeah. And which is just like well you know yeah I, again like she's she's very you know she's very formal, and she's but and, she's also proud of what she does and yes. what she does well. Which yes. she said, I think she she mentions that quite a few times that she is proud of the job that she does. Yes. She is proud of what she has accomplished and what she achieves on a daily basis, mm-hmm. and, which is why she does it well. Yes, and and then and then we and then we go and then we move on to the second interrogation uh, with with detective with detective Stark, and and we and we and then we learn that she's out killed were like the, the, the benzodiazepine and street drugs and then and, and then also the sand timer because we don't because now Stark knows that Chazelle gave her the sand timer. So now it's like, oh so there's now this connection between the two of them. And now we know that you were lying earlier when you were like when you were telling us that you and Giselle didn't have a friendship. That you yeah, hadn't but, but that is purely because Cheryl Green tells them, "Oh no, they they are friends. They talk a lot. Oh, I know. It's against like, the rules." She, she, gave, she gave access. So the, to Marty's hotel locker. Yeah, the thing is, I think Cheryl is partially jealous of the fact that Molly is so good at her job and is so conscientious. Mm-hmm. She's resentful because Molly has blocked her way to the massive tips that Molly gets for doing a really good job in the hotel. Mm-hmm. And she is also frustrated with the fact that nothing she does is going to turn Molly into someone who follows her rules. 
Mm-hmm. So there's there's there are multiple motives behind her telling the police what she knows about Molly. Yes, kind because like, she's fine. She's found fault. Yeah, and get you know get some vengeance on Molly. Yeah, exactly. She has found fault with her. There is some. There is something that Molly hasn't done right. Mm-hmm. So therefore. She's going to tell people about it because it's to her benefit. Yes, and and then and then there's also a moment where Molly, I think I, I think Detective Stark is putting her, if I remember correctly, putting her elbows on the tabletop, and Molly notes how much she hates it when people do that. And I think even uh, Rodney does this later on. He props up his elbows on the tabletop, and I just found that again to be an, another interesting little. Um, Another little, another interesting little trait about Molly, and again, I think how she, when people are discourteous, it definitely vexes her. Yeah, there are certain things that I find quite interesting. Her observations. One of them is the um, the talk that she has about the styrofoam cup that she's given in the first interview, and she talks about her internal monologue is I really she really doesn't like styrofoam because it has a funny texture and feel and when you and when you put a when you put an imprint in it it is scarred forever Mm -hmm. yeah the the textures again like I said before I really love the the sensory depictions in this book and even again like with the textures and and oh, yeah. it squeaks. That's another thing. She yeah, says it squeaks. 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 It does. It's horrible. I hate styrofoam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't have any personal feelings about styrofoam styrofoam myself, but I can see I how don't, it I don't like the, I don't like the sound and I don't like the texture. It has really funny feel to it. Yes. And I I can understand what she means by it because she is so intent on things being perfectly clean Mm -hmm. when you do hold a styrofoam cup or something like that made of that material it does mark very easily it does get imprints in it and a fingernail it's not like um plastic and things where you can wipe it away or it doesn't actually mark in the first place styrofoam does scar i suppose yes and and, and and then we have a, a couple more flashbacks, actually. Again, like, yeah, a, a lot of flashbacks and a couple more where she, or Marty flashbacks being like bullied one day at school and not telling Grant initially until Grant kind, kind of ha- kind of has like to draw it out of her. Yeah. And then, with an, and then there's another flashback where Grant reveals that uh, Marty's, Ma- Marty's mom died. And I think... It wasn't implied, it wasn't stated explicitly, but I think it was meant to be implied with drug addiction, or at least that was the way I interpreted it. There, there is actually, it's not even implica- implied. She outright says, don't, uh, the right. end statement is don't ever take drugs, yeah. stay away from drugs. Don't yeah. touch, actually it's don't touch drugs because she takes it literally. Right. Because she wonders after she's touched that those drugs, if mm-hmm. she's broken her grandmother's rule. Yes, yes. And... And, he, and then, like we learned, that you know, Molly's dad wasn't a good egg, and Grant tried did try to pull uh, Molly's mom away from, with the help of her friends, but to no avail, unfortunately. And 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 then, and then uh, Molly in the in the present ends up making the mistake of telling Rodney like everything that's been happening, getting yeah. his gun, 
hiding it in a vacuum, palming Mr. Black's wedding ring. She confides in him because she thinks she can trust him. Oh, yeah, definitely. But it is just unfortunate unfortunate that this is the worst person you could confide in. And Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. And and, and then she, she asks him to get rid of the evidence for her. And which unfortunately then leads up to Marty get, getting apprehended and start, and start, you know, revealing more information about, uh, about, you know, Marty and Giselle. And, and then, and then also there's this point when they, when it's revealed that Mr. Black uh, died by asphyxiation. Yes. And, and Giselle ended up telling the police about how Marty would kind of linger around uh, the suite. And stole money. Oh yeah, and she took also, money yep. from and took, took money. money from his wallet. Which I, which I was surprised by. I, I, because I was surprised that Giselle would say something like that. Because at, at, at this point, I interpreted her as being someone who would be loyal to, to Molly, who would, you know, who would be portraying her in, an, in as innocent of a light as possible. That's the thing. See, I, I think at that point, she hadn't realized quite um, the role that her real love played in it. Yeah. So she thought, so she was protecting him and true, doing true. what he told her to do. Yes. And, 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 her- and maybe she saw Molly telling Rodney as a betrayal. Hmm, possibly, possibly. And then Molly brings out Cheryl's uh, habit of using the same bag for the toilet and the sink. Which is just kind of another, kind of another amazing moment where I think, I, I think Molly was genuinely trying to do this to incriminate Cheryl. Which I found to be amusing. And it's just like, it's, like, it's, it's, it's a really disgusting thing to think about. It is. I mean, if it was used the other way around, it wouldn't be quite so bad. But yes. And Using sink, then toilet. Fine. Toilet, then sink. No. I know. And, and I know people do this in real life, unfortunately. Like even I, I think I saw a bit of this article about people who were fired because of really dumb things they did. And one of the things in that article was someone who got fired because they used the bathroom bag to wipe down the microwave in the kitchen. I, it, it was like a restaurant. I think it was a restaurant. Yeah, that, that's slightly different. I mean, that's a massive hygiene. That's a massive breach of hygiene regulations. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Massive breach of hygiene regulations. Probably just a, a little worse under hygiene, hygiene scale. Yes. And then also Mr. Snow also noted, apparently he also said that he's seen Molly stealing food from the, like the discarded food from, from, from Chase and small pots of jam. You know, like food doesn't yeah, be tossed so, in trash. Yeah, but that's, I mean, the thing is, it's still theft because they still paid for it. Yeah, yeah. And, and then even Rodney, and, and then Rodney, apparently he also, uh, and, and obviously he, he snitched to the police and he was like, oh, you know, I think Rodney is more than capable of murder. And Well, given her in a monologue, she probably is, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. So all of these, that's the thing. I mean, all of these things are building a case against her and she hasn't built strong enough relationships with enough people for them to 
be the ones that she turns to apart from Mr. Preston. Yes. And, and, I, and it's funny because I, we'll, we'll get to Mr. Preston in a bit, but I also just, just want to say that uh, she tra- also traces of cocaine were found on Molly's housekeeping hut, and they did find a gun in a vacuum. Traces yep. of a cleaning solution were found on Mr. Black's neck, but she says that it was because he, sh- he was checking his ports. And also her fingerprints all over the, the room. Which but then she's like, they would be. But, but, but she even says that, like, yeah, of course, like, I clean that room every day. And then, Ms., and then Molly calls Mr. Preston for help. And because we actually, and hires her, his daughter, Charlotte, to be her lawyer, because we get to mention about Charlotte earlier on in, in the book. Well, she asks him how Charlotte is doing. And has, actually, she says, have you spoken with your daughter? Oh, yes, I spoke with her yesterday. And, uh, oh, and then there's also the funny, the funny moment where once Marty finishes her call to Mr. Preston, she ends up, like, Detective Stark is kind of like just, just holding out her hand, and then Marty just gives, gives her the styrofoam cup, because she, she's assuming that, that Stark was going to clean it up for her, which I found to be kind of amusing. And Stark is even like, are you kidding me? Now you think I'm your maid? Yeah, that 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 was a bit unusual, especially it, it's almost as though she'd gone into that stage of I'm not quite sure where I am. But then she was also conscious of the fact that the room she was in was a mess. Yes. And that is enough to insult anybody who is a tight, uh, who is a neat freak. Yes. And yeah. And the, oh yeah, I, I forget if it was in this interrogation or the previous interrogation, but doesn't she, she, she also makes a note of the spoon that also has like the grays, like the gray kind of smudges. Yeah, and she, Which I she think it's this interrogation, it. it's this one, I think, because she offers her, it's, it is the first interrogate in the, not the first interrogation, but the one where she's arrested mm-hmm. because obviously then she goes off. It's where she says, oh, you can have some breakfast. You haven't eaten. So have some breakfast and she's eating it very, very delicately. And so, oh, do you want cream in your coffee? She sees the spoon and says, um, I don't have it stirred before she can stir it. Yeah, yeah. and even placing myself in Marty's shoes, just even aside of that, if I saw like some, some, some smudges or like gray, like gray crap on the spoon, I, that would be quite uh, repulsive for me to have to see. And she's like, nope, just put that away. Don't have to deal with that. Yeah, I'd rather start it with my finger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at, least you, at least you know what's been on your finger. You don't know what's yeah. been on the spoon. Exactly. And, so... and, then, and then when when the judge is granting Molly bail, he's actually fairly amenable towards her. And it, I, I think it's pretty clear that he doesn't believe that she's a culprit. The way, just the way no. that, or, exactly like, it's very very obvious that she is incredibly blunt yeah and I almost wonder like say if she did if she did murder someone in real life I almost wonder if she would be so blunt that she would just admit it outright if she would be, if she would be honest well no because she she, she, she is able to hide details so 
which oh. is why they think she's guilty in the first place because they have spoken to her several times and on every single occasion she has hidden something from them so she's done herself no favors she should have just been upfront and honest from the very beginning true not with everything obviously because yeah. we know that she's the only person who knows who the killer is yeah. but with everything else, she should have just been upfront and honest from the very beginning, and she'd have never been arrested. There would have been no story, yes. but she would never have been arrested. Yes. And then, and then Molly, Charlotte, and Mr. Preston they convene at Molly's place, and the, and they're and they're talking, and we realize that Molly has been basically a mule. She's been used as a mule this whole time. And then they also and then one call up, they uh, call one. Yep, one man well, they call up and they call him up and he reveals how he was coerced into a cartel and Rodney threatens to kill his family and he has been physically abused a few times. That's what that's what, that explains why he saw like the burn mics. And... But he also says that if Mr. Black hurt Rodney, Rodney hurt me. So Mr. Black was the bully, the big bully. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah, Mr. And then Mr. Black. He was also part of the whole operation. He was. He, he was like the, the kingpin, I guess. The kingpin. Yes. And he and, was the money man. Yes. And and then also Rodney and Giselle. They also had an affair, which we also learn in this in this whole scene. And what? Yeah. What do you think? What did you think of that? Because I actually did not see that coming. Did you see that coming? I that I saw coming a mile off. Okay. I have to be honest. Okay. She was a young, young, beautiful woman with an older man. And Rodney was all muscles and charm. And they were always at the hotel. And I saw that coming a mile off. Okay. I don't know why, but I did. It was it was probably one of the most predictable things out of all of it, I think. That particular affair. Yeah, that's that's funny because I did not I did not see it coming. One of the one of the things I didn't see it coming. I saw the, I saw some of the other twists, you know, being kind of predictable. But this one I didn't quite see. And yeah, I knew that she had to be with somebody. Yes, and and then, uh, oh, there's also a moment when when Charlotte stands up to Mr. Rosso and tells him and and she tells him, "Quote, you're the slumlord. I mean, landlord, I suppose." And yeah, I that's I mean, see, these are the things that it was just like I don't understand why they put this in here. It's irrelevant. Oh, you mean like Mr. Mr. Rosso? Mr. Rosso and that entire minute subplot. You knew that something was going to happen because he was he was refusing to give her a receipt. But it makes you wonder if it was um, is it rent protected or something? Uh, I, where they pay a yeah. certain amount and they can't increase it. I know that you have it over there. We don't have it over here. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure but if it, makes it was me, that. But that makes me wonder why he was trying, he was so so desperate to get her out of the building, hmm. even after she paid the money. Yeah. And yeah, I don't think, yeah, that's not, and that's not resolved, if I recall correctly, as to why like, he was pressuring her so much. I think he was just being kind of mean about it. Yeah. Who's yeah, opportunistic? Again, yeah, maybe. Yeah, Mr. Pre- Mr. Rosso, again, like, as, as you said before, maybe not totally necessary, but I, I, I personally appreciated like, the way that Charlotte would just kind of tell him off 
I, I found out to be amusing personally. Oh, it was it was definitely an amusing scene, but it was one of those scenes that you think, well, why is this in here yes. when we're already when there's already so much conflict? Mm-hmm. And oh, and then Mr. Mr. Preston, he also called Rodney a smarmy cretin, which there's such a there's such a a great sound to to a to a, a phrase like that. You know, it's, it's a smiley crescent. It just sounds wonderfully, See, that's, wonderful, that, wonderfully mean. It's another thing that sort of makes you question where the book is based. Because oh, smarmy okay. cretin is such an English insult. There was that, I think that for me, this was one of the things that didn't balance. It didn't balance properly. There were so many Britishisms, I suppose, in the book that made it very, very unclear as to whether this was a very British society or if we were in New York or somewhere. Because a lot of the things were very American. But then we had the tea, like the bran muffin is a perfect example of something that's very American, very American breakfast. Mm -hmm. But the cup of tea, and she doesn't say tea with cream, which always makes me cringe because you do not serve tea with cream because it turns a funny color um oh, really? it turns it turns orange hmm, interesting yeah I, I, don't, cream, I don't drink tea you, so i'm not you put, so i don't know if you put that. if you put cream in tea it turns orange a cream tea is tea with a scone <laughs> that's a cream tea <laughs> Okay, so tea. when people say tea with cream, it's like, no, you don't have tea with cream. You have tea with lemon juice. You have tea with lemon or you have tea with, you tea have tea black or you have it with milk. That's it. It's one of those things that always makes me like, yeah, this wasn't written by someone who actually drinks tea. Because <laughs> tea yeah. with cream is the worst thing. It just looks vile. Yeah, again, I don't know anything about tea, honestly. So I'll just, you know, take your word for it. It's a classic British refreshment, I have to say. And in the evenings, I drink tea. In the mornings, I live on coffee. <laughs> and yeah, so yeah, and that's why your podcast is called like Not for Coffee. Although exactly, I, wonder, I, I, I do wonder Not for Tea. I wonder how that would sound. Not quite as well because it doesn't contain as much caffeine. Being honest, it doesn't. It doesn't contain quite as much. There's still caffeine in tea. Oh, and then also, uh, so the what we thought was the the, the the donut, what we thought was like the dust, or like the powdered the, sugar, powdered powdered sugar for the donuts. It, we learned it was also actually cocaine. Yes. You know, Which was as weird as it sounds. That was kind of a given from the start. I never thought it was powdered sugar. Oh yeah, no, because they, they were putting. No, that, that weren't they all. packing away? They were packing away scales when yep. she walked into the room. Yep. Yeah, I, yeah. I forgot. I think I forgot to mention that earlier. But yeah, still packing away scales. That's yeah. the thing. I mean, I think that it's weird, but this this entire plot could be summarized incredibly easily. <laughs> True, true. Which is not what you necessarily want out of a murder mystery. Yeah, and yeah, it's definitely again, like again, as as I've said before, I've read plenty and plenty of thrillers and mysteries, and I've definitely read some of the far more intricate 
and yes. you know, they're the ones that are, you know, you know, it, it is more enjoyable again when it's when it's both intricate and also believable and logically built up. I like the ones where there is a clear motive, but multiple people have that motive. Mm-hmm. Yes. But and then also the method of murder is much less straightforward. Yes. And I then... mean, asphyxiation and drug overdose. Yeah. Okay. Especially as it's a as it's something that's used later on in the book. Yes. In exactly the same way. Well, not in exactly the same way, but the same method is used. Same earlier general. in the proceedings same but general. later in the book yeah. yes exactly L- earlier in the proceedings but later in the book mm-hmm. and and then also um and then next amadi so somebody in the group they are uh devising a scheme and they are rehearsing the scheme with one man well role playing opposite Marty, followed by mr preston and then Marty meets Rodney at the Olive Garden because this is what this is where they've been meeting at the Olive Garden for the previous dates. And she she sets them up basically for a sting at the Regency Grand. Yes. And and what 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 do you what do you think, what did you think about this about this whole sting that everyone was setting up? It felt weird because it wasn't they hadn't spoken about it with the police. It was kind of like they were doing their own thing. Yes, it was definitely it was definitely by themselves. I think yeah, probably because it, which, they felt like they, they felt like they couldn't trust the police at this point. But at the same time, that could have backfired so badly. True. Yeah, and, and that and the fact that a, an attorney, um, a high powered attorney, who had eight hundred thousand pounds, eight hundred thousand dollars at risk of bail money, mm-hmm. was going to take that kind of illegal action essentially because what they were doing was entrapment which is illegal <laughs> and, and, and and like the stark never calls out the, the group for doing this which is kind of that's kind of a weird detail that I'm, that I'm noticing just now it is like oh yeah yeah they, they were pulling a full-on thing yeah which is technically it, 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 it is yeah it, it is illegal even though they're doing it for a good reason, it is like, well, yeah, like, like you were saying, this could have turned out what yeah, people could have, di- could have died. Yeah, but it could also turned out really badly in that it wouldn't have proved anything if they didn't get the evidence. I mean, he could have, something could easily have gone wrong. He discovered that he was being set up and he didn't show up. And then she has got nothing. Mm-hmm. And that, and um, Charlotte, the attorney, could lose her license. <laughs> So it it was a, a massive risk and it felt very poorly coordinated. Because it only took yeah. one thing going wrong for the entire thing to fall like a house of cards. I mean, it didn't because it's a book and that was sure. what was meant to happen. But it just, there were so many holes in what they planned. Yeah. Yeah. And it was kind that of is, like, that is a, the fan- <laughs> did you ever, I was going to say, did you ever read the famous five Enid Blyton books? They were for kids and they were about four no, children and a dog. No, and not. they did all these kind of like Scooby-Doo solving all these mysteries and things. And that's almost what it felt like they were doing. It's like, we're going to put a, cl- we're going to put a plan together here and we're going to catch the criminals ourselves. And it's like, yeah, are you ready? Are you sure this is sensible? Yeah, and 
Yeah, that is, that is, can be an, an annoying trope, like, the, I guess, the overcomplicated plots. Like, I guess I, I guess I think of this a lot when villains, when villains are pulling off these really complex schemes. And it's like, okay, but the way this, the way this, this is planned out, if one detail goes wrong, everything will just fall apart. And I was actually thinking about this, I, I don't know, this is popping into my mind just now, but I was I recently watched the Star Wars prequels, and in the third movie, it's like Ch- Chancellor Palpatine has this whole thing where he contrived. I think I at least I, I think he contrived himself being kidnapped, and and then Anakin and Obi Wan Kenobi have to go and save him. But it's like okay, but if one thing went wrong, this whole fake kidnapping of yours could have could have ended up completely backfiring on you. That's a, it's a very specific thing that was just popping into my head. At yeah, the I, was, I haven't seen a Star Wars film since 1983, <laughs> when I saw when I saw um, Return of the Jedi with my dad in the cinema when it came out. Interesting. Oh, so so you haven't seen the prequels or the new trilogy? No, I have no interest <laughs> in seeing any of them. You know what? That's uh, that's understandable. You know what? I'm just gonna say, like, I I I again, like, I recently saw the whole prequel trilogy just recently for the first time ever, never saw it before. And you know what, I, you know, the, the, the bad movies, I would say, it's not like, it's not like, I, it's not like I was, they're not the kind of bad movies where I'm like, oh, this is garbage and it, it leaves me feeling gross. I'm just like, eh, it was bad, but whatever. I saw them, I don't have to see them ever again. Yeah, but you didn't have to see them in the first place if you didn't want to. I kind of, well, I, kind of well, I, I, I felt like I had to just because I, there were certain gaps in my, as a Star Wars fan, like, there were certain gaps in my knowledge that I knew had to be filled by watching the movies. So I felt like I just had to watch them because to get more, get more of the Star Wars lore, absorb more of it. And that's exactly why I watched The Eternals last night and will never be watching it again. Oh that, yeah, yeah. It's and it's funny we we talk about that now because I also I think I like it probably a little more than other people have, but it is deeply flawed. And I actually did a whole like a three, almost three hour long episode on this on the movie recently on mm-hmm. my podcast. I watched it for the first time yesterday, and it was the first and last time. <laughs> yeah, it was. It, it, had, yeah. it has problems. It's it's too bad too, but I feel like Eternal. Could have been one of it could have been one of the, like a masterpiece one of one of the best movies in the MCU. It could have been an amazing miniseries, is what it could have been. Or that, yeah, yeah. It just, was there was too much. There was way too much. Way too I know, much mythology ten, ten, and everything. Eternal, just cramming them all in. Yeah, and then... way too much mythology, um, and yeah, it was it was too much. And then, uh, my mum, my mum never hates them. She never dislikes the films. And she said, for the first time ever, she actually said, that film was awful. I wish I hadn't watched it. Oh. And she never says that about anything. Yeah. She then, didn't even say that. She didn't even say that about Iron Man 2. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, okay. That is probably my least favorite movie in the MCU. Yeah, you see, I mm, I'm trying to think my least favorite, apart from the Eternals. Captain Marvel probably is one oh, of my really? most yeah Ooh. I didn't like it hmm. yeah but, that has problems too but I found that to be I personally for me it's one of the more endearing movies in the MCU although it has its own problems the, the script it does have its flaws 
yeah it has its flaws I, I grew up in the 90s I was in my 20s in the 90s and yeah there are multiple flaws in that film but yeah it, it's <laughs> it is what it is yeah. but anyway back to the maid yes yes we've been talking about <laughs> we got Star Wars after you <laughs> and okay yeah so so they're doing this thing. I also want to comment on the moment when Molly makes Rodney pay for the bill. I oh, I found out to be... that was kind of like a that was a bit of a, a, a not a spiteful but a purposeful swipe at his behavior. Oh yeah, it was kind of like this is my bit of vengeance against you. Just yes. wait, the rest of it's coming. <laughs> and oh oh my gosh! And then here's also a quote. Of course, I say my sauce exactly. I smiled at Rodney, but inside I'm pouring a full kettle of boiling water onto his dirty, lying face. Yeah, see, she is quite vicious. Internally. Yes, internally she is quite vicious. And, and, then, and then there's also the moment when, uh, when she says, the sweet key, too sweet. And then she says, but he failed to register my cleverness. Mm. Sweet key, too sweet. And and, and then she also and then she also comments how it's a shame that Rodney doesn't like jigsaw puzzles because this was the thing earlier. Like I think she asked him early on if he wanted to solve jigsaws with her, and and then she and I'll just read the whole quote here. It really is a shame that he don't like jigsaw puzzles. Why? Because I say I don't think he quite knows the pleasure one feels when suddenly all the pieces come together. Yeah. And that is far more about her realization than it is about the puzzle itself. Yes, and and then she and then she also comments on I think like kind of like his expression. I think like a smug expression has smeared all over his quote vulgar lying face. <laughs> yeah, she yeah she doesn't hold back on again like internally expressing her spite towards him. Yeah, which is why I think that this is going to be something very, very difficult to translate into screen. Yeah. Again, like internal voiceover, I, again, like doing the voiceover, but I also do feel like the voiceover can be really annoying as a, yeah, like and a, I do a think, trope. Given the fact that it is something that is constant, her internal monologue is constant, yes. it's going to be very difficult for any action to take place on the screen unless they actually show her envisioning these things and they pick out a few of them. Mm. Yes. And, and then, the, and then the art, and then so they also come up in a problem when they have, they have to get this thing, this thing finished before the, before the press conference comes up. Yes, before and, it's announced who the suspect, the prime suspect is. Yes, yeah, so that, that is Molly specifically. Yes, and and it, I just I I like the moment when chapter twenty two it ends on this line, so deep fried mozzarella sticks will have to wait, because she's about to she's about to eat the mozzarella sticks. Yes, and then yeah, and, and then Molly and Cody they are preparing the thing against Rodney, and then Molly and then Molly meanwhile also calls out Giselle, and Giselle claims she never meant to fame Molly. And never knew her husband and Rodney were using Molly as a mule, but she does know that Rodney and Mr. Black were lording over the cartel. And I gotta say, like, I feel bad for Giselle, but I'm still also really mad at her at the same time. 
for what for the for the for the role she's played in this and how she has affected Molly. But then she is. I'll be then every, it's self-preservation. She is saving herself. Given I know, that, and that's why that's why I given that Rodney, her. yeah, Rodney knows that she knows. Mm-hmm. Therefore, if she suddenly turns on him, she's going to be the next dead body. Yes, and. Yes, and so again, like I said, you know, that's why I did sympathize with her. And all, and then we also learn that uh, the shame of Giselle's purse hit Riley's eye when she shooed at him, which is why he had that black eye earlier. And yeah, and then I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if we mentioned this, but he also, the scars that he had in the sternum, I think that was like a cigarette, Mr. Black, but um, right? If I cigar, I think it's a cigar. C- cigars, yeah, yeah, Mr. Black burned him, and that's why he had, he had the scar. And that's also why one Manuel had the scars on his wrists mm-hmm. yes. because he'd be, because Rodney had been burned. Rodney then burned someone else in punishment. Yes, and and Giselle and Roddy were supposed to fly to the Caymans, which explains like, the two one-way plane tickets. And. Molly and Molly just ends up telling Giselle that you know she, she needs, you know she she needs she needs to run, you know don't worry about yeah. don't don't worry about Molly, you know she ha- she has friends with her. Giselle just needs to save herself at this point. And exactly. And then and then Rod and then Roddy finally he ends up emerging from the Regency Grand with the police arresting him, and and it, and and then Stark also has a double bag with her, and. She and, and then she also she she gives a little nod at the cafe, like she and Molly interprets this as knowing that it's like like Stike knows that she's in there, and yeah. is and this is like her admitting that she was wrong. You know, she pinned the she pinned the blame on the wrong person. Yeah. And oh, and and then I forgot to mention this earlier. So Molly mentions Rodney's uh, forearms quite a few times and how charmed she is by them. And I just find that to be kind of uh, amusing because in, it, it, that pops up a lot in contemporary romances, where it's just like the men's for, forearms for some reason, it's just a really huge thing. Like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. But then she also mentions it's so nice to see his forearms with Four heart, forearms unveiled with the cuffs and, on and, them. Yep, and handcuffs. Well, yeah, there's a, a nice little turnaround there. And well, yeah, that was and, exactly what he deserved. <laughs> what, do you, what are your thoughts on that show? Whatever pops up on contempt and contemporary romances, or have you ever seen that in romances? I have to be honest; it's not something I pay much attention to when I read them. I'm more about the character development than I am about the description because. Okay. I have to be honest, most of the romances that the contemporary romances that I read are English and they don't focus on that so much. Interesting. A large, I have noticed that a large number of American ones do. Yes, definitely. Uh, in fact, I'm, I've just recorded um, the Spanish Love Deception, mm-hmm. which was incredibly shallow. If I'm being honest. Oh, really? My that's on my TV files. Yeah, um, the review comes out on the 31st of January so yeah I'm very honest in my reviews but I don't ever spoil so yeah you can read that without you can listen to that without getting spoiled on the actual book 
I do believe in making your own decisions about books. However, I do find that strangely younger authors are far more focused on appearance than the older ones are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll get back to the book in a moment, but I just want to comment that definitely I do have problems with certain ways that appearance can play such a huge fact, uh, such a huge role in romances. And even I, I feel like with like with 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 women, I actually think it's like okay for the most part. I I, I have more problems when it's all men who just have like to wash what abs and are tall. They all fit a, a very similar like physical. Yeah, but then I I think the thing is with, it's like reading a James Bond novel. All the women are gorgeous, slender, perfectly formed, 34, 26, 34, perfect hourglass. Mm -hmm. And it's the male fantasy we're seeing. This is the male fantasy. Yeah, exactly. And that, as I said, and this is the reverse. This, Mm -hmm. these are the female gaze. Yeah. So you're seeing the slightly plumper woman with a very, very handsome man. And that is the reverse. So yeah, when you're true. looking at James Bond, it's the male gaze. And that's how they, that that is the interpretation of what they want out of a woman. And then when you read the contemporary romance, it is the female gaze. And this is what they want out of a man. They want this kind of man to find them attractive. Yeah which is why they're all muscular with washboard abs and super intelligence or none at all and amazing eyes and hair and everything else when reality is completely different. Yeah, yes. I mean, we don't get very much of a description of any other character. Mm -hmm. If you think about it, we don't get much of a description of any other character. And I think that part of that is because Rodney is the superficial one. He is the one we're meant to see as superficial. It's all about appearances. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, we don't get much of a physical description. Like, I can't even recall really what, for example, like Mr. Preston looks like. No. Or exactly. what Silas looks like. Or even like or Juan Manuel. And... No, it's. But we do know what Rodney looks like. And it's almost as though that has been done intentionally so that we know that he is the superficial. And it's almost like telling you to look beyond what's on the outside. Yes. Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good comment. Yes, I'm glad you pointed that out. And, and then and so after, the, after the whole thing, Stark meets everyone at Marty's place. And we learned that Mr. Preston and Grant were engaged at 16. But they ended up having to split up. I think it was her dad, if I recall correctly, I'm looking through my notes here, but I think it was her dad who forced them to break up because of the, of the class disparity. Yeah. And, and then she gets pregnant. Yep. yep and he... preg- pregnant, yes. And... But apparently the father wants... The father has kept an eye on them which then begs the question so who's the father and I I read a lot of theories that were on Mr Preston as their father and that's so obvious and it's like well actually it's not Uh, but at the same time it could be I I don't know Mr Preston being her mother her being her grandfather 
or a grandfather. Yeah, her grandfather, mm. not not uh, Molly's father, but oh, the father of yeah. Interesting, interesting. Oh, there have um, been a lot of theories, especially when he says, "Oh, he's always kept an eye on you," mm-hmm. and when his daughter tries to bring it up, he tells her to stop it, to drop the subject. Yes, and and then, and then we also uh, we also have a moment when Charlotte, when she said when. Uh, oh, oh, when, when she's like, oh, uh, Detective Stark, did you notice any elevator in this? And then Mr. Rosso just like flees, he, rushed, he runs away. Because I think there was pointed point out earlier, like there's no elevator in this building. Yeah, which is apparently a breach of health and safety regulations or something. Yes. Anything yeah. over five floors is supposed to have a lift, but it costs money. Yes. And... Yeah, I kind of found out to be another little entertaining moment. Even though, again, like, you know, Mr. Rosso, again, we've been repeating this, you know, kind of unnecessary for the plot. Yeah. And, uh, oh, and and then I think, okay, yeah, so so this is the point when we find out that Ms. Grant uh, engaged in assisted suicide with Molly. Yes. And... Okay, yeah, so, so what, what, what do you think about this? So now we've come to this point. This is a difficult subject, I think. And I know that there are, I mean, it sounds really awful, but compare, you have to compare it to, we give, her grandmother was in a considerable amount of pain. Yes. A considerable amount of pain. There was no respite apart yeah. from basically yeah, she, being boxed, becoming. She boxed she, she going to the hospital as well. Well, yeah, there was no, there was no point. What were they going to do apart from pump her full of morphine? Yes. She wanted to be at home with her granddaughter in comfort, and that was it. We show more mercy to animals. Yes. It sounds all it's it's awful, but it's true. We do show far more mercy to animals. If you think about it, would you want to live in perpetual pain, constant agony with no escape? And that's the thing I think that Mallet finally persuaded Molly to do what she did, but she lives with the guilt of it. Yeah. And I know, that I, is a lot of it, I think, that a lot of what causes the blackouts and mm-hmm. the closing up and everything else is her guilt as well as her grief. Yeah, and this was, yeah, this was definitely a surprisingly tough part of the book to read through. And, you know, I could, yeah, I, I understand, I, I was, I understood Grant's viewpoint and just, like you were saying, like how difficult, how difficult this was. And, just how, how again like how, how much pain she was in and just to just to end it at this at this point and not drag it out any longer yeah and and, and, and again like a tough a tough part and that's why i did throw out the trigger warning earlier because i did sometimes i i was just thinking about it because sometimes i do come across stuff like this and I do wonder what it's like for certain readers maybe read stuff like this and if they weren't expecting it, you know, is it, it, it's pro- it, it, I'm assuming it would probably be upsetting. But at the same time, read, and that's why I do feel like it maybe is a kind of a warning. It's, could have been. it's almost a 
it's it's almost a blink and you'll miss it. And the thing with, I think the problem with putting trigger warnings on literature is where does it stop? Because everybody is going to find offense at something. And if you start putting a trigger warning for every single thing that occurs in a book, you are going to end up with a book in front of the book because it it will reach the point where you have to apologize for, I actually, I used to write fan fiction and somebody sent me a complaint and actually told me I was racist because I used the term paddy for a temper tantrum. It's a term that I have used since, well, my mum used to use it. My grandmother used to use it and it was offensive to Irish people. I did not realize that. And (laughs) you reach the point where you're going to end up apologizing for every single word that you put on the page. And that's a little bit difficult to under to to do as an author as a writer if you're constantly apologizing you're never going to write anything yeah well I guess I guess I I, I would I guess personally the way I view it is that I feel like it is you know if, if it is stuff like you know if it is stuff like again suicide or if it's anything like self-harm or just or murder or rape or I feel like if any of any of that any of the any of the like really hard stuff like that I feel like it's necessary to put trigger warnings up to warn people but it's a murder it's a murder mystery so there's going to be murder true but I, I feel I feel like I, I feel like it's more necessary for books where you don't expect it like for example I feel like for for example there are sometimes contemporary romances that look all like you know bright and fluffy on the outside but I've read some that are just like, they, they dig into some really tough topics, whether it's like maybe parental, parental abandonment or, you know, like, pan, you know, characters experiencing panic attacks or stuff like that. And sometimes I do read that and I want, and, and I feel like it's necessary for readers to just know ahead of time, like, hey, this is what the subjects are going to be in this book. If this, if, if this is going to upset you, then maybe you should steer clear of this. For anyone, like for example, if, if anyone who experiences panic attacks, if you're gonna read something with panic attacks depicted on page, they should at least know that beforehand so they can p- prepare themselves for it. Yeah, I, I have a thing about trigger warnings in that you're gonna find probably more offensive stuff watching the news and it's part of life. I, I, obviously I am older, I, my birthday next month and I turned 48 and I grew up in a time when books were considerably offensive and there was no such thing as a trigger warning. You either read it and liked it or you read it and you didn't, or you put it down and you would, and you walked away from it. And that were, they were the choices. And sometimes I think that if you don't ever read certain things, you don't learn about them. And sometimes having that experience is not a bad thing. Better to read it than have it. It's actually experience it. Forewarned is, yeah, forewarned is forearmed, but then there's also that risk that you're never going to pick up anything because there's a trigger warning on there because something minor happens in the book. That is, I mean, the thing is with this particular book, that scene 
all of the talk about her grandmother is a blink and you'll miss it moment. It's not very, very long in the book. And it could easily be skipped over. Easily be skipped over. I actually had to go back and reread it because I thought I'd misread it. Oh, really? Yeah, because it wasn't, it didn't feel significant. Hmm. All right, well, yeah. I guess we yeah we have different viewpoints on this, but I, I I can see I can see where you're coming from though, I can see where you're coming from. And oh and and then so uh Rod, so Rodney he was also seen pleading innocent as well, because he was being charged with murder on top of uh shouting an officer and full of drugs, but he was pleading innocent to the murder. Marty's gonna be a, a it's gonna be a witness. Oh and and then all and then also. She she used the, she she also used the serenity pillow, as well, uh, to to smother her grand, and I think th- and this is what connects to the to Mister Black, which is kind of interesting. I want I just the connection between those two events. I do wonder why that was made. It was almost as though it was made because that what she saw in the mirror and the fact that she blacked out could easily have been her doing like, what she'd already done. Reminding her, like, it's, it's reminding her of the, of the, yeah. of the memory. Exactly. The so it's, she is at that moment unsure of what she's seen because it could have been her seeing what she'd done and her guilty conscience playing with her. Yes. It's kind of like the out damn spot scene from Macbeth. Yes, yes. And... And then Mr. and then Mr. Snow, he ends up uh, backing up Molly, and she's like, she, you know, she'll return to work tomorrow because of, like Cheryl caught in sick again. <laughs> and I like I, I like when Molly brings up her coworkers, calling her odd and like you know, calling her a weirdo. And Mr. Snow is basically like, you know, just screw them. And yeah, but he t- he's but he's basically saying it's because you're conscientious. Yes. And he acknowledges that she's a conscientious worker. She cares about what she does. Yes. Yeah, a, 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 a diligent employee, yes. And oh, and, and then at the end of the chapter, she ends up, uh, she ends up asking out uh, Juan Manuel for ice cream. Because this was also something that happened earlier, because ice cream is her favorite treat. And she actually asked Rodney back in, uh, earlier on in the book. If he'd, if, he'd, if he'd like to go out for ice cream. And then several months, and then several months later, we get a lot of stuff happening like in the several months later uh, ending of the book. Yeah. Where Marty becomes half made. She and Juan Manuel are together. And, and Rodney's child was yesterday. And he, and he still insisted that he was not, that he was not a murderer. And she ends up, and Molly also ends up getting ten thousand dollars from Sandy Ch- from, from Sandy Chayman. That's the nickname, <laughs> Sandy Chayman, who is obviously Giselle. And we also do learn that Mr. Black he trans- he actually did transfer his villa to Giselle right 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 before he was murdered. And and I and then I did appreciate when Molly she when she gets promoted to headmate. And she bumps Cheryl out of the role when Marty ends up modifying the role to make her work environment 
um, warfare for the staff. Yeah, she also makes it nicer, a nicer environment for the staff in that she gives, she gifts them with things that show that they're appreciated and that oh, their yeah, work like, is like a box of chocolates and i remember yeah. and i and even has the, the tag from Marty's are made know this your work is sweet yeah exactly yeah. so she yeah, is aware that they need to they need that appreciation mm-hmm. and and then, and then also cheryl is barred from previewing rooms assigned other maids yeah i found that quite funny yes and 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 then Marty is now because she, she got some, she got a raise, so now she's starting to accumulate her own Fabergé, and she and she's planning to you know attend the hotel management and hospitality course at a nearby college in time. And, and Mr. Snow has already said that he will allow he will make sure that her work hours are around the course that she does. Mm-hmm. Yes, and. And then also Marty calls Juan Manuel her, her beau, which again fits within her, her formal personality. Yes. And, uh, and, 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 then, and then as for Giselle, she refused to come back and testify against Rodney because she wanted to basically, basically like, you know, just get rid, of the, get rid of the slime bags like him and her deceased yeah. husband. And she would have, although she probably would have come back had she been needed to defend Molly, yes. which is why she clarified who she was supposed to be coming back to testify against. Yes. Yeah, and, and then, yeah, so Molly goes and she, so she went on the stand and she testified that she saw in the mirror a person who had huddled by an armoire with a pillow in Mr. Black's room, at which point she fainted from the shock and awakened and called reception for a second time. And this is the first time that she's disclosing such information because even Charlotte didn't know. And, and, not, and, and then during the cross-examination, Rodney's lawyer asks why she didn't reveal this evidence to vindicate herself. And she, and I think the, the way she said it, she, 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 was, she was kind of like, well, you were assuming, you were just, you were just assuming, making assumptions from what I've said. And I think I think she, she also said earlier, like assu- assuming. I, she, she said I think assuming makes an ASS out of you and me. Yeah, well, that's I, a very famous one. Yes, I, I think she was even like spelling out ASS. Yes, but it's an ass as in a donkey. Yes, and. Uh, oh, and, and then also I, I like I like the moment. When I like the moment when uh, one of the maids, Sinisa, when she thanks Molly for uh, catching the snake and the grass is clean now, thanks to you. And because, because I think she said that earlier, Sinisa, she, she was saying, like, there's a snake in the grass. Yeah. So, like, nice, nice little callback. Another play on words. Yes. And, uh, yes, and so, what, what, do you, what do you think about Mr. Black giving uh, Giselle? The villa, even after like he told his ring and he stormed out on her on the final day of his life. Yeah, you see, I think that he was. I think that there is an element of he was playing games with her. He was using her and manipulating her because he knew that she could. He could, but she was going to leave with or without that house. 
I don't know, like, do, do you think that he, do you think he was giving her the villa, maybe expecting her to come back eventually? No, because I don't think he cared enough. Yeah, maybe I like, honestly don't think he cared enough about anyone but himself. Then maybe it's just like, yeah, if he doesn't, if he doesn't care about her, then yeah, just expecting, you know, someone else to marry. Yeah, and he was more, I think he was more aware of public image. And had she, had they separated and she'd got absolutely nothing, he was probably more nervous about what she would reveal about him, bearing in mind she had a lot of dirt on him. She knew about the drug deals. She knew about um, the fact that there were issues within the business. She knew that he was the kingpin. Mm-hmm. And also she had evidence of his abuse. Yes. So it's almost like give her the, give her the villa down, to keep her quiet. Yeah, exactly. If he hadn't given her anything, she would have destroyed him and his reputation and his reputation was everything. Yes. And then we and then we come up to the and, and then we come up to the epilogue. And this is where we find out that the killer was actually Mrs. Black, the first uh, Mr. Black's first wife, and as we, and as we were saying before, like she she was in the room after Molly wakes up, Mrs. Black tells her about how like basically the two sons are just like the father, and except you know, they're drug like, addicts. Oh yeah, drug drug addicts. You know, just partying all the time, just being frivolous with the with the father's fortune. And the daughter Victoria, she's trying to just, she's trying to tidy things up. She's trying to, you know, get this, get this business organized. And she's trying to rebuild the reputation that her father has destroyed. And then, but but Mister Mister Black is like trying to take it away from her. I think he was trying to take take the empire away from Victoria. You know, even even though like that, I think she was a forty nine percent shareholder, if I recall correctly. Yes. And. And yeah, uh, and so and so, what what do you think of, of this final reveal? It was predictable from the word go. I yeah. knew that it had to. I knew. I don't know why. It harks back to a couple of murder mysteries I've seen and read, mm-hmm. where the first wife, quite often, the first wife and the second wife team up together in order to kill the husband. <laughs> um and. It was sort of the minute they started mentioning about what his first wife had said about her old, her sons being wastrels and her daughter working so hard, but being treated really abysmally by her father. It was kind of like, yeah, there's a good motive for murder. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely something you could anticipate. I think personally for me, for me, I didn't, I don't think I saw this coming quite uh, right away. Like not, not as soon as not as soon as she was mentioned in the newspaper, but maybe more like I would say halfway through the book. When I when I did think back, and I was like, wait, did, does does Mrs. Black have something to do with this? And then as soon as Rodney was insisting that he was innocent, then I was like, okay, yeah, then it's definitely Mrs. Black. Yeah, I think that for me it was purely because she was the only person that kind of death. Barring stabbing requires a lot of anger. Yes. Yeah, I know. Passion. Yeah, that's something I've always. And the only people that had, and the person, the only people that had that kind of passion and anger were his daughter, 
his first wife Mm -hmm. and his second wife. They're the only people that would be that personal. And that requires, if you think about it, it's a very, very close death. It's not like shooting somebody. It's a very intimate murder. Yeah, that's something I've always noted. It was when you're, yeah, when, 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 if you're trying to strangle, when you kill someone by strangling them or smothering them, yeah, it's, it's very intimate. It takes, and it also takes a long time to kill someone with that message. Well, that's and... the thing. I don't, I don't know if it would have done when he was drugged because there would have been no fighting back. It would have literally been a case of he's lying on the bed, he's drugged, you stick a pillow over his face. There's no struggle. There was no sign of struggle or anything. True. There was no struggle. It, so he was even without a struggle though it, it would take a few minutes just for the for the oxygen to deplete it would take a few oh minutes. yeah but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be nearly as difficult as if someone no. was awake obviously oh no definitely not so it was a very intimate murder which was why it was like yeah it's, there's one of three people yes. it immediately went down as soon as they said how he died it's like yeah it's one of three yes and then the the book and the book ends with this with this passage well which I'll read here. If all of this has taught me anything, it is this: there's a power in me I never knew was there. I always knew there was power in my hands to clean, to wipe away dirt, to scour and disinfect, to set things right. But now I know there's power elsewhere in my mind and in my heart too. Grant was correct after all about all of it, about everything. The longer you live, the more you learn. People are a mystery that can never be solved. Life has a way of sorting itself out. Everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. And that's the end. <laughs> I would say, in, in general, I still like this book, even with its shortcomings. Like I've been saying over and over again, I, read, I, got, I personally connected with Molly throughout the whole story. But when it comes to the actual plot, I think the plot definitely could have been tightened up there could have been much more of a, it, it could have been much, much more of a compelling mystery with more, more unforeseeable twists. Yeah, I think for me, the, the fact that it was all about drugs in the first place was like, this is lazy. There were so many other things. As I said, the, the best one for me would have been the, the one deed, that, right? yeah, the, the deed. The, it could have been the hotel. We know it was the house, but it could have been the hotel. He could have been desperately trying to buy that hotel because he owned everything else. And it made him, I mean, we didn't know enough about him. And I don't think we still learned enough about him to make him this evil central character that deserved death. And we learned more about Rodney. He's the one who deserved to die. And because he was manipulative and everything else, all we ever heard was, all we ever got was hearsay about Mr. Black because he died at the beginning of the book. And I like it when you get to learn, you get to know the victim and their behaviors before they die, before their death. Yeah, I I guess. But that's a personal thing. Yeah, I guess that, that's again, that's also a trope in mysteries and thrillers is when, I would say specifically like when, when there's specifically a husband or a boyfriend or just some man in, in the story who is gaslighting throughout the whole thing and they're doing horrible things and then you do feel a sense of satisfaction of vengeance, right, no, rightful vengeance when they're yeah. off at the end. I don't feel like this was quite, it was okay, but it wasn't quite as satisfying as I've read other 
you know that's uh, the thing we didn't things. we didn't know enough about him true yeah we know what other people said he about wasn't, him. he wasn't as stressed out as other as other men of his kind and he sh- and he should have yeah he should have been far more fleshed out we should have actually got to see him alive and got to see his behaviors and his actions rather than oh i remember he did this or they told me he did that mm-hmm. actually seeing it would have been better from my perspective given us a much more well-rounded view of him as a victim yes and I guess, and, and, and again, you know, as I said before, personally, I still still struggle with the, what I feel like is cultural stereotyping for one man well, and again, the way that the autism, Marty's autism isn't made explicitly clear, even though again, like, I, it's, it's hard to interpretation with the autism, but still, I see it does kind of bug me still. And it's too bad because I, I did want to outright love this book because I, I know I know other people have just loved it. And this was, I think it was a Good Morning America book club pick, if I recall correctly. And I have know, no idea. We don't have Good Morning America here. So <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I think I, I think it is. Yeah, Good Morning America. And you know, a lot it's of people only been have, out for a month. And I, I know. It's like, yeah, people have been just loving this book and it's only been out for yeah, yeah, a month. And just for me, I didn't love it as much as other people. And I think you also feel the same way as well. But you know. yeah, I didn't, I don't think it was, um, that's the thing. I mean, as I said, I don't normally read the bestseller list when it's a bestseller list. Yes. I, unless it's an author that I absolutely love. And then it's purely because I buy them from habit. I will pre-order them a year before they come out. This one wasn't on my radar. And if I'm going to read a cozy mystery, it's probably going to be MC Beaton or Agatha Christie because they are two that I think do it very, very well. Uh, all right. So do you have any, any, any more thoughts on The Maid? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I'm just thinking about the way that the characters were written. They, I'm The central characters were written relatively well, mm-hmm. but they're really ultimately there was only one and that was molly yes every other character was kind of revolving around her she was the sun and everyone was revolving in that orbit yeah and instead and instead of being well-rounded they were kind of dumped in as second thoughts and that to me isn't good writing yeah which is too bad because again i i also appreciate books where not only do you have like the lovable character, lovable protagonist, but you also have the fully nuanced supporting roster as well. Yeah, exactly. And these were not. Not one of them seemed to be well-rounded or developed in any way that made them valuable. Yeah, you know, again, again, you know, different people, you know, different different opinions. So. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> but all right, and I guess so. That's and I and I pretty much said everything I want to say at this moment about, about The Maid. So, all right, so yeah, so that's our episode on The Maid by Nita Froze. And now we can segue to the segments I have at the end of every, every episode, which is Good Word. And, that is, and that's where uh, we each get to recommend something, whether it's a book, a movie, a TV show, a podcast, music, anything. So Ray, what is your Good Word? 
my good word is <laughs> it has been for the last year Circe by Madeline Miller I absolutely love Greek mythology I studied it at university when I decided I wanted to further do further study and I fell in love with this book it is amazingly well written full of tumultuous situations can really relate to the characters well not relate to them in that you know <laughs> their understand their experiences but you can actually you get to know all of the characters there are no peripheral characters that aren't well-rounded and there are moments that make you cry laugh and fall in love with the world that has been created for these particular these particular characters that she's written so that is my definite recommendation I think it came out in 2018 and I read it last year for the first time and spent about an hour crying after I finished it because I'd finished it so that's definitely one I'd say pick up if you like Greek mythology or just like to read yeah that's actually been on my TBR pile for a while it's amazing it really is I would 100% recommend picking it up it is an amazing book but then Madeline Miller is a fantastic writer yeah because I I I personally enjoyed another book of hers the song of Achilles yeah that's the only other one she's written yes and (laughs) I I do want to get get around to reading that in the future so definitely and so for, for so for me I am going to select the Chronicles of Nadia film trilogy. I recently watched the movies and I guess I would say specifically the first two movies. I I personally really enjoyed the first two movies. I think they really do set that medieval epic tone quite well. And uh, whereas the third movie, I had had more problems with. But in general, like, you know, I again, you know, recommend the Chronicles of Narnia movies on you know in the US they're on Disney Plus. They're in Disney Plus everywhere because they're Disney's. Yep, yep. And I, I, again, like you know, watching it, it does it does definitely give off, you know, like Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings vibes. And generally, I've also been getting just more into uh, fantasy as well. And so you know, again, just really enjoy the Chronicles of Narnia movies. And haven't read all the books though. I, I only read a couple of the books, but I don't know between the two because I think Narnia and Lord of the Rings I think are actually quite similar. The books, whereas I I feel like Tolkien, the just I feel like the, the story of Lord of the Rings is better than the story of of Narnia, but the Narnia books are more well written than Tolkien than Tolkien's books. I feel like the Lord of the Rings are very dense. Yeah, like look, that's because the Chronicles of Narnia books were written for children. Yes. Yeah. That's that, why that, the that Narnia book, yeah, that's that why Tolkien is, yeah, Tolkien is incredibly thick tomes, apart from obviously The Silmarillion and The Hobbit. The Hobbit was written as a children's book, but the Chronicles of Narnia, there are several books, I think there's five or six, and they are written for children. They were yes. intended for a children's audience. We grew up with them. Yes. And there were books my mum read us as children. I, I just want to say, like, Tilda Swinton, she rocks as a white witch. <laughs> oh, she does, definitely. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's my good word, the Chronicles of Narnia movies. And now, Ray, uh, let's, uh, let's plug your socials. You want to end your podcast? Where can people find you on social media? 
Okay, on social media, I'm on Twitter as need underscore three underscore mugs. On Instagram, I am not before coffee podcast. On Facebook, I am also not before coffee podcast. And I have a website which is notbeforecoffee.co.uk. So that's pretty much where you can find me and obviously on all the podcatchers. And as for me, you can find my, you can find me on uh, just this podcast on Twitter at two underscore sense critic. And you can also find my personal Twitter account at author underscore and 18. And you can check out my blog at two sensecritic.com. You can email me at email two sensecritic at yahoo.com. And I'm all, you can also find me on, on Goodreads at author Howell. And make sure you uh, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you, wherever you listen to podcasts, and make sure and you know make sure you give a review on iTunes. You can uh, you know tap that start tap the star rating on Spotify. And again, I want to thank I want to thank you Ray for coming on here. I really enjoyed this episode. Thank you. Yes, and until next time, stay healthy and stay strong.